0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, January the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host Patty Daly and David Williams, he's producing the program. Let's get it going if you're in the St. John's Metro region the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 86 86- 26. Well, as you heard, Ben Murphy and our meteorologist guest on the morning show, weather warnings everywhere on the island. So here comes the big melt. The bit of snow we got looks like it's going away between the rain and temperatures reaching maybe 9 degrees tomorrow here in the metro region, and there's going to be wind and rain rain prevalent for 18 to 24 hours, starting sometime later today, so there you go. Big win for the Growlers last night in Cincinnati, won 6-1, and a hat trick from Gander native, Adam Dawes. So way to go, Adam. Another big win for the Growlers that's game one of a three game set in Cincinnati. right, yesterday I mentioned that uh, on that date, the 25th of January, the very first ever Olympic Winter Games took place, and they opened up in Chamonix, France. So today, this date in history, 1924, the first ever gold medal was handed out in the Winter Olympics. It was an American skater named Charles Jutra, who won the 500-meter men's speed skating event, 44 seconds flat. The world record these days is about 10 seconds quicker than that, which is is pretty amazing stuff. So Jutra narrowly beat out a Canadian for that gold medal, Charles Gorman was that fellow's name. Have you ever heard the name Danny Heater? Dave, you ever heard that name? I've heard this over the years but it was on this date in 1960. Heater was a 17-year-old uh, senior basketball player at Burnsville High School in Braxton County, West Virginia. On that day, he scored 135 points in one single game against Wyden High School of Clay County. It's only 32 a 32-minute game. He made 53 of 70 field goal attempts, 29 of 41 free throws, also grabbed 32 rebounds and dished out seven assists in that game. Now, it sounds pretty cool. It's the most points ever scored in a high school game or professional game. There was one fellow who scored 138 in an NCAA Division three game Uh, his name is jack taylor but Heater never went on to do anything as a professional basketball player but 135 points sounds fun and cool but not a good look when someone piles it up like that danny heater okay let's keep going so the price of gas up again so, the PUB, with their own reasoning, regular gasoline is up uh, 5.2 cents per liter, diesel, a most 9 cent increase, furnace oil, 7.75 cents up on the island, 8.09 cents in Labrador. Where does it end? Propane increase actually about 3 cents, which uh, doesn't usually budge a whole, whole lot. Then you look at the predicament that the folks on the north coast of Labrador find themselves in, and using stove oil. Some folks will be able to be, uh, combine stove oil uh, with uh, wood-burning uh, stoves in their homes, but not everyone has one. So the price a year ago was around 380 bucks. now it's 500 bucks. A drum only lasts a couple of weeks, especially if you only have that as your sole source of heat. Then you couple in the lack of sea ice so people are unable to go and get more wood. So they find themselves in a really tricky spot. Imagine living on $1,200 a month, period, and it's going to cost that and all of that just to heat your home if you rely in full on stove oil. So if you are on the North Coast and you'd like to chime in, whether it be... Marjorie Flowers up in Hopedale or anybody else, that's just an incredible cost associated with heating your home. Boy, oh boy. And yes, the Bank of Canada was widely anticipated to address their benchmark interest rate, they did exactly that yesterday afternoon as announced by the central bank's governor, Tiff Macklem. It was a little bit of a curious press conference. So they raised the benchmark interest rate, which none of us get, by 25 basis points. So now it's 4.5%. That's 4.25% more than we were paying on our loans and servicing our debt just a year ago. It's the eighth straight hike in less than a year. Governor Macklin says that it's conditionally the last one we'll see for the foreseeable future, all in an effort, I suppose, to combat inflation. But, you know, even if inflation from the record high of 8.1% is now around 6.3%, I'm probably the same as you. I don't feel any easing in the inflationary pressures, certainly when we talk about buying our groceries. And we know that food inflation is about double what the standard or general inflation rate is. So, there are, you know, he paints a rosy picture in one breath and then goes on to point out that they're forecasting zero growth in the country, economic growth, in the next three quarters. So, you know, there's different schools of thought. I don't know what the future holds, but certainly feels like an economic slowdown or stall is right there, right in front of us. People throw around the R-word, recession. It may indeed be happening, but zero growth for the next three quarters, so says Macklem, is absolutely a problem. And in in addition to that, the folks who actually understand the monetary policy and the implications of, they're all – the consensus is – All of these levers pulled at the Bank of Canada probably don't see any real impact on inflation for maybe 18 months. So all it really means is that for us mortgage holders, we're paying more. For those of us for the line of credit, we're going to be paying 7%-ish versus what would have been closer to 2% just a year ago. So this has widespread implications. You know how many mortgage holders, even with that 25 basis points, it makes a big difference. We were all encouraged, given the fact that we were told that there would be long-term low interest rates, and so the variable mortgage became the go-to. Now, there's no one to blame but ourselves for racking up any personal debt, and household debt is at an all-time high in this country. That's even excluding mortgages, but up goes the benchmark at the Bank of Canada today, and of course that will bring on a massive pinch. He goes on to talk about the global influences, and of course it is a global phenomenon. It's not just in Canada where we see sky-high inflation, but it got away from us in a hurry, and the road back to what is the goal or the aim of 2% inflation It's hard to even foresee how that's going to work, especially if we talk about the price of gas, uh, the price of homes, the cost of rent, and yes, the price of food. So anyway, how that impacts your particular world, you're more than welcome to call us and talk about it this morning. And so while we see all of these things happening, and while people are really pressurized in their pocketbook, Let's go specifically to Memorial University. Now, it's always going to be important for the university to do what they need to do to try to attract uh, investment for research and to bring big conferences to town and yes, to be part of the Arctic Forums. But you also have to take the temperature of the room, and in this case Memorial University absolutely did not. So I get it that these events are going to continue to take place regardless of the pressures, but all the while, a year over year skyrocketing of tuition, negotiating with their faculty association union, and maybe a strike in the offing, but they took it upon themselves to have one day of retreat here in the city of St. John's on campus, but then went off to the extraordinarily lavish Fogo Island Inn for the next three days. You know, there's lots of disparities in the story about what the actual costs are, but the direct expenses incurred by Memorial University, $57,000. There's another uh, roughly 53 that were covered by external funding or partnership costs, but might not include all the travel monies that were spent because staff may have used some departmental budget earmarked for travel. So, you know, while all of these other things are swirling, we really need people to be cognizant of it, And so can we not have these partnerships between the uh, MUN, the Norway's University of the Arctic, and the Shorefast Foundation, and of course founder and CEO Zita Cobb made a presentation at that beautiful hotel that the vast majority of us will never see the inside of, certainly never put our head on a pillow. It's lovely and it's done great things for Fogo Island, absolutely, but when we have a look around, And whether it be the protests by Munsu and talking justifiably so about the massive increase in tuition and, yes, trying to deal with your faculty association and factor in the extraordinary maintenance deficit on campus, period, just here in St. John's, that doesn't even include some of the events and spending and needs in Harlow or out in Grenfell. So this one's certainly not a good look. I'll put it that way. You're more than welcome to chime chime in on it as you see fit here today. Yesterday, I admitted quite freely that it's difficult to know how to talk about issues regarding crime and punishment and root causes, because it's simply not in my best interest nor yours for us to try to be fear-mongering, to scare people regarding public safety. The numbers are clear. The Crown prosecutors are now speaking out, and that's Sean Patton. He's a prosecutor and the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Crown Attorneys Association. They are being handed... Uh, copious numbers of files on some very serious incidents. Numbers from Stats Canada, they back up what Patton and his fellow prosecutors are saying. There's been a 20% increase from 2020 to 2021 in violent crime severity index. So, you know, we can talk about uh, all of the different issues surrounding it. So, just for instance, they have got, I saw the numbers here earlier, where did I put them? They're currently prosecuting 12 charges of murder or manslaughter across the province. And that does not include any appeals. And, of course, they're not just dealing with the high-profile, very violent crimes. Anywhere from, you know, nicking a bag of chips at Marie's, all the way to domestic violence, all the way up to manslaughter and murder cases. So they're overwhelmed. So they seem to be underpaid compared to their counterparts in other parts of Atlantic Canada. Crown Prosecutor starts at around $50,000 here. It's more close to $80,000 in the province of Nova Scotia. So they don't get paid overtime for doing all the work they have to do. They haven't arrived at a place where they're not prosecuting cases because they don't have the manpower. But they are taking it upon themselves in their unpaid time to make sure that the work is getting done. So there was reference yesterday to some comments come from Premier Fury about the potential to invest more in law enforcement. And I don't think anyone disputes that there might absolutely be the need for that. But if we look at the spike in crime, violent crime in particular, you know, people make the comment that it's the same 100 or 100 or maybe 150 people involved in the vast majority of these violent crimes. And if you swept all them up, you'd clean the place up, make everyone a bit safer, inevitably those people get backfilled by the next in line in the criminal organizations, whether they be formal or otherwise. But the reality is, if we're gonna talk about violent crime, we really have to understand what has led people down that path. Now some people are just criminally uh, minded, period. But the reality is, and people in the court system will tell you this, is that so much of these crimes, so many of these crimes are directly related to drugs. And then you add in poverty, and you add in mental health concerns. So yes, there might be a need to spend money to bolster law enforcement agencies, whether it be the RNC or the RCMP, but I think we go a long way to making the place safer and to ridding ourselves or decreasing the numbers of crime, violent and otherwise, if we had more of an attention on drugs, drug treatment, mental health, uh, long-term access, and all the other key areas inside the mental health uh, envelope, and yes, poverty, which is why the pilot program announced last week by Minister Abbott regarding youth on income support and encouragement through a variety of incentives to get them working You know, dealing with things like at that level will have a big impact. It kind of came and went. It was a one-day story. We had Minister Abbott on the show. I think it probably accomplishes a variety of things. Not only is it good for all of us if fewer and fewer people are on income support and in the workforce, but also breaks the cycle of the likelihood of being on income support if you grew up in a household where your parents or your caregivers were also on income support, the likelihood of you growing into your adult years and doing the same thing is there. So breaking that cycle will deal with things regarding poverty, hopefully. It sounds like a step in the right direction. And yes, dealing with drugs and access to treatment and mental health care is all going to be, I think, infinitely more important and infinitely more impactful on a positive side than bolstering law enforcement. It's not to say that we don't need more police on the street, but wouldn't it be great if if there wasn't the need for more police because we were doing more to curb crime by addressing the root causes as to why so many of these crimes are taking place in the first place. So anyway, there's a lot on that, but if you want to take it on, this is not to talk about you should be scared and lock your doors and cower away. No, but the numbers are what the numbers are. So whether it be for resources at the Crown Prosecutor's Office or most importantly, trying to decrease the number of files that they're having to deal with. So I know that all sounds a bit possibly utopian, but just putting more and more police on the street really just means that that's more and more people reacting after the fact when a crime has been committed, as opposed to try to decrease the number of crimes in the first place. Anyway, we can talk about that, and we should. On the mental health front, uh, hopefully a couple of calls coming in today that we didn't get to yesterday, not only about the big scheme of things regarding mental health, mental wellness, and mental illness, and access to treatment and care, But the new process for integrating the emergency rooms at the Health Sciences Center when the new mental health facility is completed has brought some concern to mental health advocates. Even though Eastern Health say they had widespread consultations with people who are advocates, individuals, families with experience in mental health, advisory council, clinicians, they came up with this new process and an integration. It doesn't really look or feel like an entire integration where everyone is in the same room, you walk through the same door, go through the same process. The new process does paint it a little bit of a clearer picture versus everyone simply is in the same waiting room. So here's what's gonna happen. You present yourself to the triage nurse and register in a private area away from what would be, we'll say, the current structure of emergency room at the Health Sciences Center. You get assessed by a mental health clinician They'll determine whether or not you can or should or want to go back to the general waiting room or you go to a very separate waiting area. So it's, you know, it's sometimes the stories we just glean whatever we want from headlines, maybe don't get a little further into it. And I admit, I don't know what the best approach here is. You know, when the Eastern Health Manager of Addictions Services and Mental Health Services says health is health, he's right. But we still have to make sure that any hesitancy to present yourself while in crisis is dealt with in the most appropriate fashion. So if you have more experience and know more about it than I do, which would be most of you, please do indeed bring your thoughts uh, through to the program. Because I don't imagine there's anything completely set in stone here. They are increasing the number of assessment rooms from four to eight. There is going to be a separate area for people in mental health crisis. But that's a new approach being taken by Eastern Health. for When that mental health and addictions facility is completed, you want to take it on. Let's go. Changing channels a little bit here. So, the whole three Rs and not the reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's reduce, reuse, and recycle. One year after the city of Saint John's uh, implemented the need to use clear garbage bags, with the exception of one of the what they call the opaque privacy bag all in an effort to reduce the amount of uh, garbage handlers have to deal with hazardous materials and increasing recycling rates. And it's been a whopping success. So over just the course of one year, there's been 500 more tons of recycling than the city usually processed. And that's a big increase because most recyclables are fairly light. So to add up to 500 tons is a big deal. It also comes with financial savings for the city to... The lift fee or the tipping fee, pardon me, for garbage is 88 bucks per tonne. Recycling is more like $22 a tonne, so it has impact on all sides. 73 or something percent of the plastics that we bring into our home are not recyclable in the first place, which is why reuse and recycle are great, but its reduce is going to have to be the key. I mean, we all just came through the Christmas season, and if you had to buy an action figure or a Barbie or some toy that was encased in a plastic tomb we all know just how much plastic even just went through in the holiday season. Then you go to the grocery store, and the example I use all the time is individually wrapped like cucumbers. I mean, the amount of waste inside the world of plastic is Incredible. So it's not all just about forks and spoons and straws and single-use shopping bags and all the rest of it. It's the big scheme of things in the plastic world which has brought all of these plastic-related concerns. And it's, it's not to be over the top about the dangers of plastic, but it's made its way all the way through the food chain. Not because I say so, because it's been proven scientifically. You know, some of the food that we eat from the oceans... We've seen the microbes of plastic have made their way right through the species in the water, and we're eating it. So anyway, you want to take it on. But that seems to have been a big success. A couple of quickies before we get to your call. This one in the fisheries. So whether we talk about the rotten fish plant, uh, fish sauce plant out in St. Mary's, and who's on the hook for cleaning that up, and it should be the federal government. They're the people behind it in the first place. But the story regarding crab. Crab has been an extremely precious Commodity for harvesters and processors in this province. When the groundfish struck the problems it did, it was the shellfish that really saved the day, shrimp and notably crab. But so many countries on the face of the earth have imposed sanctions against Russia, but Japan is kind of looking the other way. So in some years, Japan bought about 50% of the snow crab we produce in this province. And just for some context for weight or tonnage, over the course of the past 10 years, about 9,000 tons of snow crab was sold in Japan. In 2022, it was less than 3,000. 30% of the crab that's been taken out of the water this year is still in cold storage. Why? Because the Russians are undercutting us and selling in Japan. They're one of our most important trade allies. And what's a little bit ridiculous on this front, and I don't know if this could be settled or solved, but Clifford Small is the man who's brought it to our attention. Of course, he's the Conservative MP for Costa Base Central Notre Dame. He brought this to the attention of Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray. She had no idea. That's not very helpful. So imagine, 30% of the most lucrative product is sitting in cold storage because Japan, one of our trading allies, and allies, period, is looking the other way and they're buying up the Russian crab at less cost. It's hard to blame for doing anything at less cost, but while the world is imposing sanctions, they don't seem to care on the crab front. So result, maybe $100 million in losses for the crab industry here in the province. Not good. Uh, and for the folks who are protesting on the mainland, about Port-to-Port Peninsula, about water and what's causing the problems and the contaminants in your water, you're welcome to call the show this morning. And we're trying to bounce around a couple of good news pieces before we get to the break. We know that the province has garnered some 59 East Coast Music Award nominations. I made mention of some of those who were nominated yesterday. We'll uh, highlight Kelly Loader. Kelly Loader, of course, finished second at Canada's Got Talent uh, this past year extraordinary performer she's up for entertainer of the year congratulations kelly we're on twitter we're vosm open line follow us there her email address is openline dot com. when we come back oh sheila hinks is in the queue she wants to talk about uh water quality out of port of port the whole crown lands issue and then we're speaking with you don't go away welcome back to the program let's begin on line number five good morning amelia curran you're on the air hi patty how are you i'm doing okay thanks for asking how are you doing
1: uh, good. 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 I meant to call you yesterday, Bell Let's Talk Day and all that. Um, I've since completely forgotten what I was going to say to you.
0: <laughs> well, there's a big oh, world okay. of a mental health issues out there. I think, you know, Bell probably read the writing on the wall with as much as they were trying to do good work, it was all sorts of public relations involved with it. So this year, as opposed to just paying a nickel for every hashtag used, a one-time $10 million donation, which is why I don't think it got as much Bell... Influence yesterday as it would in years past.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do know. I've looked at their granting system in the past and how that money gets doled out. Um, and it's it's pretty good to my mind. I, I don't know if they've changed it. Um, but they're, they're small, one-time grants. So they tend to go to small, community-based, community-minded organizations all across the country, which is great. It's not just the one drop in a bureaucratic bucket kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I, I do. I do think that people will see Bell Let's Talk Day, and there's a lot of uh, corporate criticism, maybe, but uh, in the long run, even in the short run, that money does go out into the community.
0: Absolutely. I I think they took some possibly unnecessary swats for their involvement in this. But, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, whenever big corporations get involved in these types of things, there's always that suspicion that it's more about their public relations than it is about the cause that they're supporting. But, you know, the funding has been real. There's been tens of millions of dollars over the years, and hopefully it's doing the work it's intended to do
1: yeah i think so i mean I, I like to say it's it's not about the money but sometimes it's about the money so i kind yeah. of you know if they're going to drop a few thousand bucks at us i think that's great um but also the you've been talking about the new uh, mental health facility at the health science mm-hmm. and um i would i feel like it's um cautionary to be sort of black and white for or against this kind of thing um I think where advocates may be struggling is we are delivered this facility as though it is solving all our problems. Um, This is obviously not what's happening, but what it is is a brand new mental health facility, which we really need, which is definitely going to have an impact, which is definitely a a good positive thing. Um, But it's not the, it's not the overall blanket solution to all of, you know, mental health care issues that we're contending with. So I think if we just have a look at the bigger picture and go, yes, this is a good thing. It's not a 100 percent win across the table, but it is a win and it's, it's a big one you know?
0: I think so um, the setting is important when we're talking about health care delivery period uh, and there's no question that it's not the be all and end all it's certainly a step and a necessary step in the right direction but until we change the amount of focus spending, uh, human resources and access to long term care then bricks and mortar is only a piece of that and I think people realize that for those who sell yeah. it as this is the end of the road of course all our problems are solved it's simply not true so if the delivery well, doesn't change but only the setting does then it's only a partial victory it can be part of a complete victory but only a part
1: yeah that's that's it exactly and i mean it depends infrastructure is one thing but it depends on who who is running the place who are they filling it with you know it's irish nurses i guess i don't know but um the the caregivers the gatekeepers Um, And all this sort of stuff that really matters if you're walking in a brand new building, or if you're walking into to a dilapidated building, it it hardly makes a difference if if you do or do not receive the, the proper care from the proper individual. So that's, that's a big part of it as well.
0: Yeah, I I think that would be the consensus across the board. And with the WHO staffing it, I don't know. I really don't. I assume there'll be, just just like people worry about, well, where are we going to get the healthcare professionals to work in the hospital that's intended to replace St. Clair's? Well, most of the St. Clair staff, for starters, would be part of that. So I'm assuming mental health professionals from the Waterford will simply just move to the new facility. There is some of the gaps that I don't think I've ever heard anyone in the government speak to. For instance, when Dr. Lada died, I don't really know if there was a plan in place to not only uh, backstop or backfill his advocacy work, but the patient roster that he continued to see well after years of so-called retirement. So when we had already problem with access, I don't know if there's been any professional team of or individual that's going to be able to perform the role that Dr. Lotta did because that was huge.
1: It was absolutely huge, and I've, I've been thinking about him so much. Um, Dr. Lotta was 360-degree was care. Uh, which was not ordered from him, but this is just in part his education, in part his work in the community, and just the individual who he was. Um, people will get 360 long-term care. If if Dr. Lada died on a Tuesday, people still showed up for their appointments on that Wednesday. I have no idea what happened there. You know, certainly a lot of it's none of my business, but I but I don't know how you replace... Uh, an infrastructure who is a person like, like Dr. Lada, he was so important and, I, and I'm not sure how long it's gonna take us to feel that loss. I think it's gonna be a while.
0: I think so too, I mean, I'm not in those rooms behind those closed doors when they're acknowledging what's coming in the near future, whether it be the numbers of professionals retiring or leaving or dying, but when you have figures who have been so influential, have taken on so much of the, of the heavy lifting, it becomes the requirement to speak to those individuals specifically. So Doctor Lada stood apart. Now that's not to say that other mental health professionals in this province aren't critically important because of course they are. But some people have a bigger caseload, influence, and clout, and Dr. Lada was one.
1: Yeah. Yep, I agree. And I'm I'm speechless. I don't know what's gonna happen. Um you know it's I was in the room for for some of the... I was on the Recovery Council for for a good couple of years, and I was in the room and it was presented to us, will this new mental health facility be part of the health science or will this new mental health facility be where the Waterford is still standing? And we had an anti-stigma conversation that put it at the health science. And then things happened very fast. And when I think back on it, I, I... I think uh what what we really wanted was both um, we can't have that right now, I suppose um finances and all that sort of stuff, but what we really wanted instead of this either or care is is both is many facilities you know I struggle with that still, even though it's it's it, I struggle with committees and bureaucracy and all that sort of stuff. I have kind of a low ceiling tolerance for it but um yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, and now I can't remember where I started, but just the new facility, yeah. I mean, it's exciting, and at the same time, it, it gives me pause.
0: Me too. I think it's just uh, the, it's just part of the conversation, as I said earlier, and it's really not much more than that. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that there had to be a replacement for the water for the waterford. Mm-hmm. It. it was well past its best before date, so this is necessary. But it really does, and you know, I get the thought process where the government, you know, hearing all of these conversations about stigma, and the stigma, I think, is gradually eroding, I hope it is anyway, but they Mm -hmm. seem so hell-bent for leather to put that new facility right there on that well-understood floodplain alongside the health sciences because the whole thought coming from the manager of Addictions and Mental Health Services, saying health is health. I get it because we've long been saying things like, whether it be cancer or a broken leg or pink eye or schizophrenia, it's healthcare required. So I really totally understand why they're going down this road If it has the hope for positive outcomes, that's terrific, but You know, they say they've had widespread consultations, and I'm sure they did. I don't really know whether or not this is the best play regarding the integration of emergency room services, which is not a full integration, it's a partial integration, but fingers crossed that it's not just new bricks and mortar, it's a brand new approach, because it's not that long ago we were talking about, one in five Canadians will deal with a mental illness. Now the numbers that we're using, just these last few years, the numbers changed to one in four. So obviously, if we had a problem for access and wait times two years ago, it's grown right across the board because there's a long way between one and five and one and four when we're talking about 38 million Canadians.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty overwhelming. The big picture is overwhelming for me. Even thinking as big as an entire hospital of service is overwhelming. I, I tend to be more on the, my understanding and the way I, I hope that my advocacy has been working is more on a community level, friends, family, education, um, it, it could be a far walk between you and an emergency mental health situation if we are educated and we understand more how to take care of ourselves and our friends and our family. Yeah, true.
0: I mean, it's like they say, you can only eat an elephant one bite at a time. So it (laughs) it all does start small. You're 100% right. And it's not just all on the Canadian Mental Health Association or all on the Department of Health and Community Services. There is a community shared obligation here, I would think. So it's always great to speak with you, Amelia. I'm glad you made time. Would you like to offer a final thought?
1: yeah i uh just i meant to call you ages ago but i i'm living the preschooler dream of constant sickness um
2: <laughs> i get that
1: i uh i meant to call you about the uh, the maid legislation um the medical assistance in dying and how this is uh fairly recently includes uh mental illness as uh i don't i don't know how they put it but the the legislation is there you're eligible for medical assistance in dying if you if the only thing you suffer from is a mental illness, um, and and this is very troublesome to a lot of mental health advocates. And I know this was in the news back in November. Um, but I also I had a I had a stint on the board at the Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention. They've made a statement about this. Uh, that advocates for caution on part of the caregivers, on part of psychologists and doctors and all this sort of stuff. because one, you know legislation is difficult to create, and I think it's infinitely more difficult to uncreate. So these are these are the parameters within which we are working. So again, it comes down to advocating for caution, education on a, on a family and friends' level.
0: Absolutely. They've soft-pedaled the commentary around mental health as the sole reason for uh, applying for or looking for medical assistance in death, but I understand, once again, how and why that was created, but it can't be yeah. used as a tool to deal with hopelessness. It, it just yeah, can't. And we've, we've seen those stories, whether it be inside the ranks of uh, veterans and or folks who simply think that they've become a burden on their family, that's not what it was intended for. If you have a uh, A prognosis uh, that is dire and you are living in excruciating pain and there is no hope. Maybe that's a dignified way out, I'll call it, which that's probably not the appropriate way to say it, but it's not simply because you feel hopeless and we can't get you the appropriate supports. I mean, that's not what it's intended for, but yet it's it's become that for some. Uh, Off I go, Amelia. Good to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you around.
1: Okay, thanks. Thanks. Bye.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, the medical assistance in dying, uh, look, if, if you had a loved one who the end is coming and they are living in unbearable pain and there's nothing to be done for them, then there's probably a legitimate argument to be made that they can indeed reach out to the healthcare professional, go through the entirety of the process to find that assistance. But not what we've seen made used for in circumstances. Some of those stories, I feel hopeless because I've got one ailment or another. I need certain types of home care support that I can't get. And so consequently, I think I'm a burden on my family. That's why they decide to go down that path. That's not what it was for. Uh, Let's take that break. Don't go away.
3: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
0: Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Line number two caller? Dave, is that pot in action? Hello? Hello, you're on the air. Yes, sir. I called, uh, I think it was on Monday. Of last week, yeah.
4: Actually, it was this week. Um, I was very Hello. interested in your last caller. Uh, she made uh, much notice of mental health. Um, but still, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if mental health and addiction... Is being talked about enough? Uh, I know it's usually linked to uh, criminal activity, and often it is. But I'm just wondering if we can get someone at a you know professional level to call in and uh, give their views on on the wait times when it comes to recovery uh, rehab and things like that within the province. And it doesn't seem to be talked about much at all. We don't talk about mental health
0: on this program? Is that what you're telling me?
4: No, we, uh, no, you do. I, I give, yes, give much credit for that. But it's just not, you know, when someone's trying to get help, it takes forever.
0: It certainly can, yeah. I mean, there's been Um, advocates out there with weekly protests for, I don't know, almost a couple of years straight here talking about exactly that. Not only wait times to get into the churn, but then long-term access to health care, mental health care. So I I think, I well, I try to understand the issue, and I try to speak to it on a variety of levels, and I don't uh, focus in on just crime and mental health and the relation between the two. We try to take it on at a very organic level all the way to different factors, whether it be wait times, uh, staffing issues, bricks and mortar, you know, just the reality on the ground, what it means for individuals and families. So it's hard for me to know where to start, but I'm happy to tackle it because if we're talking about one in four Canadians, then this is an issue that's going to impact at least, at least 25% of our listeners, add to it those who are the friends of, the family of, because it's a wide issue that I don't think we can ever cover enough, let alone uh, in the best way in the best way, because it's a tricky conversation but I'm happy to have it like most of those conversations the trickier they are the more important they are to have
4: it's it's one of those conversations that we don't really truly want to have do you know what I mean it's, it's something that we don't really want to talk about but it's something that impacts like you said beyond one in four Canadians no question so it's, it's, it's like, I mean, uh, personally, I've I've lost people uh, and they've they have been they reached out for uh, sometimes weeks, months, years. And, and and just to mention Dr. Lada. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I have a bit of a uh, cold. Uh, Dr. Lada, I mean, it was a huge loss. Huge loss. Uh, I like to mention Dr. Bruce Hallett, who kind of moved into his position somewhat. Uh, he's been uh, he's been a great uh, a great replacement, and uh, you know the new Waterford—that's something else. Uh, is this new building within the Health Sciences Center? complex, is this simply just going to be the new Waterford? Is it actually going to be more of
0: what we need, or is it just simply going to be the new Waterford? Fair question. I don't know if anybody really knows the answer. Yeah. So, it's it's one of
4: those things where are we actually adding uh, resources, or are we just moving resources?
0: Well that's the that's the key. That's the, the sixty four thousand dollar question because new is great but the you know a re I kinda of get tired of using this word, reimagine, but I know a change in our approach to mental health care has got to be part and parcel with simply putting up a modern, new facility because it's only part of the issue. Uh, I appreciate yeah. the time this morning. We'll keep it on the front burner as best we can and certainly people with individual experiences and as an individual and or a family member or a friend of, they're always welcome to call the show on this one because the stories are important and the telling of the stories and hopefully leads to positive change.
4: And, and hopefully they do because it's not being talked about enough. Uh, and I know you do a good, great job. I mean, uh, but it's it not something that's being talked about enough. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of people out there suffering and there's uh, a re- result of that suffering. There's a lot of crime as well. So the connection, I don't know what the government's trying to do, but I think they're missing missing the mark there.
0: I appreciate the time. Thanks for calling this morning. All right, thanks. Take care. bye Uh will I take Sheila here, Dave, or try to stay on break? No, take her? Okay, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sheila. You're on the air. Good morning. Morning to you.
5: Oh. I'm calling from the picket line out in mainland on the Port of Port
0: Peninsula. Right off.
5: I got a lot of concerns and I we're not getting any answers here. Well, first I'd like to talk about the Crown Lands, if that's okay. Sure. I wanna talk about my home that I bought two years ago got it surveyed and now it's under it's on bids for uh, world energy from our government now I don't know if anyone know the process of this but I called uh, Crown Lands and I asked them about this and I asked what process had to be done so they told me I had to fill out an application send it in which is going to cost me 170 dollars Then I had to get another surveyor to come survey my land, pay for that survey, send that information off to Crown Lands, and if indeed it is approved, then they had to send someone from Crown Lands to come assess my land, and then I had to buy it back at market value. So, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. Like, I have uh, my land here. My mom is 98 years old. She's living. All our land on this little peninsula, a little community, has been here forever, long before Confederation in 1949. And now we got the, our government selling us off, putting our land up for bids, wanting to bring in these big turbines that we don't want. 99% of our community don't want this. And we're being pressured. And we're scared. Like, we don't know where to turn. Not including the issues we have with our water.
0: uh, Okay, so we'll talk about water in a second, but what are you afraid of?
5: Losing my home. How can I keep my home if my my government is going to put my house up for bids because they're considering considering it Uh, Crown Lane.
0: I mean, it's certainly going to potentially present a legal issue, a time issue, a monetary issue, but are you saying that you think they're going to just simply expropriate or take your home?
5: To me, that's what I see. Now, I may be wrong. I may be completely wrong, but when you can't find any answers and you're asking questions... What does that lead you to believe?
0: Well, of course, worst-case scenario. That's the way it always works, isn't it? Isn't it? Yep.
5: It, It is. And that's what I don't understand. Like, how can the government issue this and allow this company to come in to make a big bid on the lands here on this peninsula?
0: Yeah, the two licenses that are in place, they refer to them as temporary. Whether or not that's accurate or true, I don't know. But let's talk about the water issue for a second, Sheila. So... You know, it's the issue regarding the pump that was uh, placed at the mouth of the brook there sometime in the late 90s. What what do the locals call it? LaClanter?
5: It's called LaClanter
0: Brook. LaClanter Brook. Okay. Because sometimes, you know, local pronunciation is what we should be using because it's not written that way, but that's neither here nor there. So there was a road into where they're going to install this, what they're again calling a temporary wind monitoring tower. just to collect the data for, of course, the usable purposes for if and when they get final approval for the 164 wind turbines. So is the thought that with the road, the way it was cleared and its proximity to the brook, that it's caused all the water problems? The government says it absolutely has uh, had an issue with the color of the water, the turbidity of the water, but doesn't present a, a human health risk. So what is the issue as you understand it on the ground?
5: Well, right now, okay, we heard that, and they they talked about it on the news, and this is what the government is saying, which doesn't make sense to us, because it's more than that to it. We have the results here. Now, I should have sent it in to you so, so you could read it and understand it. But they're telling us not to pump the water from Laquance Brook into our dam right now because it's undrinkable. And they're talking about licenses, and and temporary but then if that's the case that they were allowed to come in and do this why did we stop them they didn't show us any license they didn't show us any permits so why is the government saying it was issued this is what we we here as a group don't understand if okay the license were issued well then when they came up to finish their work on this road why didn't they take us out of here and go through this is what we don't understand. And the thing about this all is, too, everyone that we speak to on this picket line have no answers for us. It can't tell us why.
0: So are you disputing the claim that there are two temporary licenses in place? Like yes, I, say-
5: I am. I am disputing it 100%.
0: Okay, so let's, say, let's just say someone from either the company or the government went to the picket line with a paper copy of uh, one or both licenses. All of a sudden, that makes things better or different?
5: No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't change the fact that we, we are being poisoned. Our water is being poisoned. It's not changing that fact. But what I'm saying is, why didn't they produce the permit? Or why didn't they say, okay, this is the way it should be? We didn't have any answers. This is our 10th day here on this picket line, in freezing conditions. And still, we have no answers. And for the the government to come and say that they issued these licenses and they were going to be terminated after this Met Tower was up, what is that telling us?
0: What is it telling you?
5: Honestly, and do anybody honestly believe that they're just going to go up here, put up a Met Tower in our backyard, because exactly where it is, exactly in our backyard, and they're going to generate all their information, and that's going to be it. They're going to take all this down and move it away, and we're going to be left alone in peace with no wind turbines? I don't think so.
0: Well, I don't know how... how...
5: This is their, their plan.
0: Well, I don't know how close this MET tower is to the proposed area for the wind turbines because this tower only suits one and satisfies one purpose. It has no permanent need or, no. for operations.
5: So. No, it doesn't. And this is our, uh, this is our issue. And, and it's not only this. They've got drills up there where they're planning on putting a, a Met, the MET tower. Well, they have equipment up there already. This is, they've got things in place right now. Now they have a big drilling system up there. Like, what are they going to drill? Why is it up there? What is their plan?
0: Are they drilling simply for the footing for the tower?
5: We don't know. And the the drill is massive. So I don't know. I I can't see them just drilling to put holes in in the bedrock for, for for the tower, for the Met Tower. Like, it doesn't make sense.
0: Well, they'd have to have some sort of secure platform for the tower, obviously. So what that means, I I really don't know. It would be nice if some answers were forthcoming, whether it be from the Minister of the Environment or anybody else, whether it be on permits, the temporary status of licenses, the temporary status of the tower that they're putting right there in your area. I'm happy to try to get them. I would also wouldn't mind seeing some of these water quality tests and results that were performed, because if they simply say there was a problem with color and turbidity, but no health concerns with the water. Be nice to see some of that as well. You know, just if I lived in the area, I'd want to see it. I uh, appreciate the time, Sheila. Say hello to the crowd on the uh, po- the protest line and stay in touch.
5: Certainly will. Thank you so very much for taking me on.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back. <clears throat> Pardon me. Let's go line four. Lindsay, you're on the air.
6: Yes. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. Yeah, okay. Uh, i like to talk about the... Uh uh, not the GST, but the uh, carbon tax that the Prime Minister is going to shove down our throats in uh, July month. Okay. Okay. Now, not only is it the carbon tax, but now I was listening to Dan McCader yesterday evening. He comes on every Wednesday evening talking about the price of gas and oil and oil patch and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And he's saying that's going to go up now to about 14 cents, the carbon tax. Well... Okay, on a liter.
0: The next increase is two cents, yeah.
6: Yeah, and then on top of that, it's going to uh, get the G S or the H S T on top of that, which is another three cents. So that's seventeen cents in July month that we will have an increase.
0: No, that will be the know, total. That it's not no, an increase. That's
6: only saying the seventeen cents. Okay, on a on a leader. There's
0: not a 17 cent increase coming. That would be the total combined impact of the carbon tax since it was first introduced. That's right.
6: Okay, then I thought it was a 17 cents, uh, you know, in July month. But anyhow, like, is that just here in Newfoundland and Labrador, or is that right across the country?
0: The carbon tax, unless unless the provinces have, now Quebec is getting a special deal on this one, which is completely unfair, uh, but across the country, the imposition of the carbon tax will either be the federal scheme or a provincial uh, plan approved by the federal government. But by and large, across the country, we'll see the same impact.
6: Yeah, okay then, because uh, you see, like you said, uh, Quebec is getting a special deal, which is, that is true, but the way I see that, like, the Prime Minister is looking up more to Quebec than the rest of the country, and I think that he's afraid that they may try to run away from home again.
0: Well, I don't know if that's the concern. I mean, the concern is quite clear, is the number of seats in the province of Quebec, which I think is 82 off the top of my head. And uh, this Prime Minister, like every Prime Minister before him, has had keen focus on Ontario and Quebec because you can win and lose an election in Central Canada, period. So there has been plenty of sweet deals afforded to the province of Quebec. There is no argument coming from me or anyone else who's actually paying attention. So, yeah, it's about the fact that you can win. If you do well on the 401 and ontario and you do well in, in uh, quebec you win
6: yeah that is, that, so that's that, pretty that much that, that. True, but he's only got a minority government and he's got to depend upon them for the next election so he's taking a big chance right now because if they go against him in the next budget he's going to have an election and a lot of people are going to look at that you know a lot of people are going to say well we don't need that uh, carbon tax so they may say, okay, they'll vote for NDP or another party like the Conservatives or some other party. Well,
0: the NDP are all all, all in on carbon tax and price on pollution. And of course, the carbon tax was in place when the last election took place. Yeah, so- I
6: know because uh, this is what, now the second or is the third carbon tax? I know we've had one.
0: Yeah, there's been two increases.
6: Okay, this will be the second one now in July month? I think
0: that'll be the third one officially. If I remember correctly, it began at...
6: so. I know, you know, like I know that we're getting them left, right, and center, so far as I'm concerned. You know, like, like, like the way I see it, he's still taking a big chance on it because he's only got a minority government. And a lot of people just don't want that carbon tax. You know, And I think that the uh, Conservative leader, what what's his name? Um,
0: Pierre Poliet.
6: Pierre Poliet, or whatever his name is, didn't he say that he would stop the carbon tax or something? Yep. Yeah, that's why, so a lot of people may vote for him for
0: that. Maybe. uh, I don't know how people are going to vote this time around. I I think the shine...
6: You know, but everybody got to vote according to their conscience, I suppose. Sure,
0: I think the shine has gone off uh, the prime minister and has been for quite a number of uh, years. But the reality, once again, though, is across the board, uh, individuals voted for candidates representing parties that had a carbon tax as part of their plan. somewhere in the neighborhood of almost two-thirds. So there's you know, there's always going to be a base of support for conservatives in this country. Of course there is. And you know, whether or not they actually have a plan that people think can work and how it's implemented and what the impact is on my uh, pocketbook as an individual okay. or for corporate Canada, I don't really understand exactly what they're attempting. I think there's a fair argument to be made that the current liberal plan isn't working either. So I don't think anyone's got this figured out. And we'll see when the next election is, and we'll see whether or not Trudeau is actually at the helm of the Liberal Party at that time. He says he will be, but I, I somehow doubt it.
6: Yeah, like, 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 as far as I'm concerned, like, is uh, pushing his weight for someone with a minority government. You know, like Ontario is often a swing province, people back and forth. You know, like, he did may get tired of liberals they turn and vote conservatives you know maybe I, that's I always the issue a lot like that too not to mention the fact that you got the block party in Quebec which can take a lot of seats I think they got 90 seats now something like that the block has in Quebec
0: uh, it's less than that I, I believe yeah, okay I but know, they're not I as popular they as they, they once were
6: seats anyway you know. So, uh, you know, anything can happen. Of course so, it can. You, you know, like, he, he's taking a big chance. And, uh, like, the other thing that I want to ask, like, he said that uh, people with wet furnaces, that burn a furnace oil is going to get a, get a rebate every three months starting in July month.
0: Well, there's always been a rebate associated with the carbon tax.
6: Yeah, Yeah, but I haven't gotten
0: one. uh, Hold on, Lindsay. The reason you haven't gotten one is because we haven't been on the federal plan. The provincial plan.
6: I'm on uh, electrical heating, and a lot of other people got to take heat pumps, and the odd person now is getting solar panels put on their houses, you know? So, uh, are these people included in that re- rebate
0: as well? No, there's, there's it's not a one size fits all but those who rely, you know, for starters I don't think carbon tax should be applied to home heating fuels I just don't. There's not much you can do to uh, adjust your behavior. There are going to be pockets of money and rebates and subsidies to move away from oil fired, uh, fired heating your home but it also comes with a price tag that many people can't afford. So I you know, anyway, we'll all find out and understand the carbon tax federally when it comes to town because at this point, we've all been doing the provincial plan, and all the revenues went to the province, and there was no carbon tax on home heating fuel, and all that's going to change. i got to get to the news, Lindsay. I appreciate uh, the call.
6: We're all paying for it at the gas pumps, though, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, we all should get a rebate, as so far as I'm concerned.
0: I appreciate the call, uh, Lindsay. It's
6: like cheese the one and chocolate <laughs> the other again, you know. Mm-hmm. we we'll do this much for this group, but that group over there, we'll forget about them. You know, to
0: that's that's what he's uh, talking about uh, I poss- Possibly, I'm not 100% sure what that means But I'm late for the news, but I appreciate the time Lindsay, stay in touch Yeah, okay then Okay, all the best Okay, bye-bye Let's take a break for the newscast, don't go away Join us for On
3: Target One hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you On Target
0: Weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM Welcome back, let's go to line 3 Christine, you're on the air Hi,
7: Patty, how are you?
0: Not too bad, how about you?
7: Oh not to that. I was just uh wanting to ask you a question. Uh, uh with the uh our treatment centers there in Newfoundland. Uh I was informed that one of the reasons uh, that the uh, wait time is so long is because of sh- shortage of staff.
0: Did you hear anything? I think that's the case right across uh, all of the health care delivery, whether we're talking mental health care, physical care, addictions. I think there was a shortage issue, period, yeah.
7: Yeah, so, I mean, if it's a shortage, I mean, and I, I realize there's a shortage in our health care, uh, but if the shortage in a, a treatment center, for one, uh, you have somebody that, uh, uh, or a lot of people that's waiting to get into addictions and uh, uh, severe addictions uh, uh, number two if they're short staff uh, are they can they even give them the three week treatment that they need
0: once you get in I imagine you get the entirety of the program the problem is getting in
7: yeah well I don't know like I said I mean my son's been waiting like I said 11 weeks now for impotence and there's no indication when it's going to happen. Uh, he reached out to Humblewood there on Monday uh, and sent a message. But the lady he speaks to, she's off. So it's just he put off, put off, put off. It's ridiculous. When somebody is wanting the help and needing the help and, uh, uh, like, and I mean, not getting it, it uh, it's unacceptable. Like it's, it's just, it's so, so unacceptable. Like.
0: Well, of course it is, you know, because the difference between getting in within a reasonable amount of time versus the four- to six-week wait time might mean the difference, and not to be dramatic, might be the difference between life and death. It might be the difference between changing your mind and going back to your old ways and then not getting in, period, not even presenting yourself to go into a treatment facility, regardless if it's a three-week course or a three-month program. Yeah, exactly. Now,
7: I did, I reached out to... (laughs) Another lady I sent an email to this morning uh, uh, just to see if she could give me the uh, Natsavut Health uh, uh, Treatment Service uh, uh, information. Uh, my son is uh, a beneficiary of uh, the Natsavut, and uh, so I reached out, sent her an email last morning to see if she can give me information on that or give so I can reach out to them i mean i'm reaching out to absolutely everybody that is that i can reach out to i'm after reaching
0: out to and i'm going to continue for cost coverage does your son work for instance is he still employed while he deals with this issue or i mean does he have any money to you know play a role his own individual role in getting some help whether it be at brentwood in ontario or anywhere else
7: no he ha- he hasn't uh he hasn't worked he applied on jobs and i mean uh, uh he could have went to work, but i mean his counselor recommend that he not go to work until he gets better because money and drugs don't go they don't mix i mean <laughs> he's not better so i mean if he had income coming in or money coming in i mean God forbid.
0: Understood. I uh, hope he gets the help he needs and wants uh, ASAP, and I wish you well, Christine. Thanks for the time this thank morning.
7: Thank you, but, uh, Take, uh, Patty.
0: You're welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Leonard here, Dave? Yeah, let's go. Line number five. Leonard, you're on the air.
8: Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I uh, want to call and give you some information that you might use and have to use over your show from people calling in, in the next, in the future, right, about uh ord. Okay. And uh, our building trade to Newfoundland is after saying that, or the president of the building trade, there's no way that it's going to be going out of the Newfoundland area.
0: Well, the, the thought now, based on the actions of Ecuador is that the fear is that the construction jobs will not be here. Whether we top sides or otherwise. That's the fear that Darren King and others are speaking to. Yeah.
8: Yeah, but I'm just. Yeah, okay. That's, that's, I'm uh, just going to give you an a uh, kick against that because uh, I worked in uh, Terra Nova, uh, Hibernia, in 1993, 94, that area. Okay. And uh, we built the gravity race in uh, Mosquito Cove in. Uh, you know where that's to, in Trinity Bay? I know where it is, yeah. Yeah, okay, we built the gravity base there and we had the module come over on ship from Korea. A lot of money to bring them over. There is. We had to bring over a take lift that could lift six and seven and eight thousand ton to put the modules on the gravity base when we finished it here in Newfoundland.
0: Okay, so the point what's the point you're making, Leonard?
8: The point I'm making is when we they were trying to save they were trying to save money by getting the module built over in Korea because I talked to people that was on the job doing just looking around and see what's going on uh, that was sent over by the by the plant by the, the shipyard and then and, uh, they told me they built uh, the most of the modules on uh, people that. Uh, were drunks. They uh, used to give them a bottle of wine or two a day for working.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that, but I mean. But
8: let me show you what we went through. We were doing. We were insulating the pipe, and there uh, was a few uh uh in the metal uh sixteen or twenty gauge metal, uh, sixteen thousandth of an inch or twenty gauge of an inch, and we were insulating me and uh, a lot of the lot of the crew was in there, fifty or sixty or hundred of us, and uh the the foreman uh from from over in. Uh, Southern Harbour told us to uh, put back that metal because it's all beat up. This is a, a, this is a miracle of the world. Well, we honest to cover the metal. You know what was in there? Instead of three inch cal cell and five inch cal cell and fiberglass insulation, five inches and four inch thick, with nothing but, nothing but Korean newspapers. Now that's not a dangerous thing to have when they started that and catch on fire when the pipes got hot. Module ten, okay. Okay. A big, a big, a big, a big talk and a big, big, a big story and a big waste, and a big panic in there over that. They wanted it done. So we got at that, stripped every bit of metal off and threw it away and had to come completely new from them, 30, 40 forty-inch pipes that transplanted that. that transported the, the oil from one section of the boat to the other and go to its stage before, he went abo- before it went aboard the ship he brought in, right? ships that belonged to chest Penny, one of them, this and that right?
0: Okay, so this is all interesting from your own personal experience. But well, what know,
8: you- when we got when we got one done. Yeah. Was like, but, what, it was M10, M20, M30, M30 M40, M40, and M50.
0: But Leonard, Every Leonard. Them, uh, Leonard. to
8: be stripped and insulated again.
0: Leonard, what yes, does that have to do with the beta Nord jobs?
8: It got the I got the, it got the goal. I got to go. And I the maiden hour job because if we get uh, foreigners over to do that again, they could try to pull that off again. You know what I mean? That that wouldn't happen in Newfoundland because we're too good of insulators. There's a uh, fifty or sixty million dollars it cost to repair the modules and put the stuff back on them again before the modules were lifted aboard up the the, the the gravity base. And I don't that's all i you don't think this is important what I'm saying
0: well, I don't know what that I don't know why
8: the trades the Billy trades are not uh, kicking up about they don't know nothing about that It's not that long ago for ninety three I was forty four year old in i don't I don't I don't understand why there's not no one mentioned it.
0: Well, I do think they talk about the caliber of work and cost and societal benefits and it is our resource and we should be getting some of the work or if not as much work as we possibly can actually do here in the province. So I think they are kind of speaking to it. Maybe not from the specific. I insulated angle. For twenty yeah,
8: yeah. five years yeah. besides fishing and land draggers and everything, right? But uh, I know we can do the work here for fun. Only a joke.
0: I'm sure we can do a lot of the work here. Of course we can. I need We've done it in the past.
8: Yeah. Well, there's not much more I got to say that is a bit of that, but I'm gonna ask you another question. I'm gonna give you another little t- question now, uh,
0: quickly go and ahead. I'm
8: gonna give you another bit of information now that I know as well as you. When you was up in Alberta, buddy, you and you know I about the form out kill, how old were you, Patty?
0: I was in my twenties, so that was nineteen or oh, pardon me, it was nineteen ninety what was it, 1996
8: or 7, maybe? Yeah, after I finished in Bull, after I finished in Bull and and I went to Alberta I was up. Well, I was in Alberta in 60, '76 and 76, and 78, and all of your years, too. But I knew him very well, uh, the, mur- the murderer. Do you know who he was?
0: I don't, I don't recall the name. I do know it was in the town of Mayerthorpe, because we played some hockey in Mayerthorpe, White Court, in those communities. Yep. I'm sorry, what was the fellow's name?
8: His name was James Roscoe. Okay, Jim Roscoe. He had a couple of partners that went and bought the guns. and got six or seven years each after that in jail.
0: Yeah, he, he died on the scene, right?
8: Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I was uh, going out to a fellow in Edmonton that had a, far, a, a sort of a farm there and stayed at his house on the weekend for a couple of days. He was a bachelor, and I was out with him and come back to work together. We were good buddies, but these fellers were somehow connected to the, around the farm where he lived. And he was half scared and I was half scared too, because uh, James Roscoe used to visit them, right?
0: Well, I mean, there's a good reason to be scared. Someone who was willing to slaughter four cops, or four Mounties. turned
8: around, he turned around, and he got them. The reason why they got so much jail term, they had no other choice. They, they he, 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 uh, threatened, uh, threatened their wives. They, they, they had to go out by and buy the guns and ammunition for so he was up in the Quonset about 40 feet up near Big Old Quonset because the Mounties were trying to retri- retrieve a truck that he had that he never paid for. That's right, yeah. For the second time, and this time he was going to go against it. So he was up in the in the i set up. When the Mounties came, the door opened for him to push the door and come in, and they were point-bank range, bang, 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 bang. But one of them caught him with one shot, and he... uh turn around and uh, finish
0: yourself off. Yeah, it was a it was a really scary story at the time. That much I remember quite clearly. And of course, massive news right across the country, but obviously in the province of Alberta. Uh, Leonard, I'm off to the break. I appreciate the time. Thank you, yeah, sir. One of
8: the mountains
0: uh, uh, that got- What happens there? I'm sorry, Leonard, go ahead. Leonard, do you want to finish your thought?
8: Yeah, I'll just say one of the Memories that God killed. Their father was a minister, and buried, and and buried them. Okay. Okay. Okay, Patty,
0: Thanks. Thanks, Leonard. All the best. Yep.
8: Okay. Talk to you later. I got I got a lot of
0: stuff to in my mind. Be <laughs> that I've been everywhere. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Leonard. Bye bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're talking about staffing issues that emerge. Jim Dempsey from the Wooden Boat Museum, museum, and the PC member for Terranova, Lloyd Parrott, wants to talk about Bay Nord as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one, the top of the board. Say Good morning to the PC member for Terranova. That's Lloyd Parrott. Lloyd, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing?
9: Oh, I'm I'm doing okay. It's part of the reason I called in, actually. Uh, I wanted to send a bit of a bouquet out to the staff at the health sciences. I had a fairly significant uh, medical procedure done before Christmas and uh, witnessed firsthand some of the stresses and strains that the nurses and doctors are facing in there. And uh, specifically, I had a surgery done, and when I came out and uh, went to the recovery room, there were seven nurses on staff. And and you know, throughout the day, I spent quite a bit of time there, uh, conversation with the nurses, asking how things were going and. What they were facing on a daily basis, uh, they were quick to inform me that there was, uh, I believe the number was eight of them that had, were there at work that day and seven were off. So they were supposed to be staffed at 15 and uh, you could certainly see the stress and the strain on their faces and, and still they smiled and went ahead with their work. So I want to give them a shout out and thank them for the treatment I received and, and, and let people know that... Uh, while the healthcare system is struggling, there's a lot of good people behind the scenes that are working very hard to keep us healthy and, and uh, safe. Uh,
0: far more often than not, once you get in the system, you get the top quality treatment that we deserve. So the problem that I think you know, grabs all the headlines is shortages and wait times and those types of things. But the people that we've got working in the system are absolutely top quality. Of course, we're going to have instances where people think they don't or didn't get the kind of care that they wanted or needed. But by and large the pros are top top quality even working through the conditions must be just awful for some of the disciplines in healthcare. but anyway i'm glad you've received the kind of care you need and hopefully you're on the mend
9: on the mend patty still got a little bit of a way to go but uh, I, i'm sure that you are aware i'm i i'm an amputee so i had a surgery done on my stump a revision done and uh, so still in the process of getting a new prosthetic and all that good stuff but okay. i'll be fine i'll be fine good uh, i'm going to call about beta north uh so, obviously, there's lots of different conversations happening with bayton Nord in different language. And uh, The first thing I want to say is that, uh, you know, my previous role as uh, the critic for industry energy and technology, I had lots of conversations with the current minister, uh, Andrew Parsons, and uh, I, I believe wholeheartedly that he's working hard to uh, make sure that this happens in the best interest of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I'll believe that up until the moment it doesn't. Uh, what does concern me is that this is going to take a whole lot of political will, and... Uh, you know, when I look to uh, the NDP and the Liberals and, and even our current Liberal caucus here in Newfoundland has members who have publicly said, leave the oil in the ground, and it scares me. And we need to do as much of that project as we can right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And, uh, you know, I look at, uh, you know, the, the top sides on the Terra Nova, and, and the, we got to compare apples to apples. So the Terra Nova was an FPSO, it was built in the 90s, and 70% of the work that was done on that was done right here in Newfoundland. And the sea Rose, same thing, uh, FPSO, same stall, much smaller, obviously, but the uh, almost 90%, just over 90%, I believe, of the work was done here, and that was done in the 2000s. And on top of that, the hookup, commissioning, and mating, all done here in Newfoundland, and those projects sailed away from our shores. And here we are in 2023, uh, you know, with the Nord Project and Equinor, a uh, state-owned company, and it looks like this may to Newfoundland, not away from Newfoundland. It will be the first time in our history, and, and it's 100%, 100% not acceptable. As much of that work has to happen here as possible.
0: Sure. Uh, just so I make sure I'm hearing you clearly, is... Do you have any reason to believe that the government isn't trying to uh, ensure that happens? Because when we look at these things, you know, whether or not you're interested in or a proponent or an opponent of oil and gas, job creation is always a political victory. So do you think the government isn't focused on that? Or I'm just trying to make sure I'm getting your point.
9: No, no listen, I, I said the same thing that you said with your previous caller. I, I believe that government and, and the building trades and everyone is talking the same language right now. But we need to talk. We need to continue to talk that language and, and push Equinor to do as much of that work as possible. And obviously, there are concerns that uh, a lot of this work will be done elsewhere. And, and listen. If you look to the model that Norway is using now with the Johan Casberg, they sail the hull into Norway, and all of the other work is being done there. We know that the hull can't be built here in Newfoundland, but the rest of that work can be done here. I mean, we have the workers, we have the workforce, the expertise. We've proven it time and time again that we have the ability to do it. You look no further than Hebron, Hibernia, Terra Nova, West White Rose. As a matter of fact, you go to the Terra Nova that just sailed to Spain, and if you and if you were to talk to uh, you know members. Uh, that worked on that that were full-time employees on the Nova. a lot of them ended up getting sent to spain to do to do the work over there the, the exact work that we were told couldn't be done in newfoundland was done in spain by newfoundlanders it, it's just entirely unacceptable and at some point we we need to start putting newfoundlanders and labradorians first and carrying that work out here in Newfoundland. and you know the spin-offs the economic spin-offs associated with any of this stuff you don't have to look very far to find the statistics i mean when you're looking at the billions of dollars that the Hebron project created here, I mean, 42 million man hours of work for billing trades and, and others. And in all of those economical statistics that are being thrown out, nobody talks about the, the indirect spinoff. So just from my past history, I was on the board of directors with the Hebron project when it was being built. I live in Clarenville. I, I You know, my office was right across the street in Southern Herbert. We've seen so much happen and such an economic buzz and not just Clarenville. I'm, I mean, from port of Bass to St. John's, all over this island, there was construction happening. I mean, in, in the shipyards in Glovertown, in, in port of bas the flare room was built. It was happening everywhere. And a lot of men and women were put to work. And the economic spinoff of people making the money and spending it right here in this province, it's astronomical. And the one thing that I'm not hearing people say, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, when we get into the environmental argument about oil and gas and offshore and people saying...
0: I can hear him in my headset, but he's the phone line's gone. Man, I don't know what's going on here. All right, let's see if we can get Mr. Parrott back to finish his thoughts. Let's get another one before we go to the break. Line number three, Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, Jim Dempsey from the Wooden Boat Museum. Welcome back to the show.
3: Uh, good to be here. Uh, it's January, New Year. We're uh, looking forward to the upcoming summer season. And I just wanted to fill you in on a few of the things that we got on the go. <coughs> sure. Um, yeah, last summer, the last couple of summers, we survived. And in fact, we saw in the three summers uh, with the uh, COVID situation, um, our visitation steadily increased. So we're almost back to normal. <clears throat> and we expect to have a good year in 2023. Um, we didn't uh, sit in our hands during the pandemic. We've been active, and at the museum itself, we've added uh, two new um, activities uh, that are probably been interesting and uh, uh, complement what we've been doing all along. Uh, the first is an activity center. We've had a small building behind the museum that we've renovated to be a place where people can come and do hands-on things like um, uh, rigging, uh, traditional navigation. Um, We've got a couple of um, model boats, uh, a Punt and a Dory, that that can be assembled and reassembled. Uh, We learned a bit about boat design in there. Um, and as well as that, we are now the stewards of the Society of United Fishermen Hall uh, in Winterton. It's actually right across the street of the, uh, from uh, the museum, and we've added that to our presentation. And last year, we were able to um, do some necessary renovations to put the building back in shape and uh, develop a program there that describes what the SUF has done for the province over many, many years. So that's, uh, that's all new and fresh, and uh, we're quite proud of it. Um, <clears throat> last summer, we had a good season for boat building workshops. Surprising, actually. Uh, and uh, we offer a series of either one-day or five-day programs. And in the five-day programs, we um, We either learn all of the essentials of building a traditional round-bottom punt, uh, and a little more uh, popular is our five-day Build-A-Dory program, where we uh, get a group of maybe six people together, and they work with Jerome to actually um, uh, construct a 17-foot Banks dory. Uh, All of our boats are for sale, and uh, our new manager, Betty, has uh, done a great job in marketing them. So uh, we feel like we're alive and well. Um, With regards to the boat building workshops, this year we want to offer something a little bit different. And one of the reasons we're talking to you is to let people know that we're thinking about this and we'd love to receive some feedback. Uh, We feel that um, we're not reaching out enough to to the women of the province. Uh, This is their heritage as well. And uh, we intend to put off a five-day dory building workshop strictly for women. Um, I've seen this with other organizations like ours. And in fact, my daughter, who lives in PEI, uh, <clears throat> was a coordinator for a program putting women into traditional skills. She herself is a carpenter, and uh, she linked uh, her students up with uh, pipe fitters and electricians and welders and carpenters and uh, the message I'm getting back is that as a starter um, women are probably a little more confident uh, in a situation where they don't feel challenged by men who think they have experience we have the perfect instructor in Jerome Canning for this so I'm looking for some feedback to see if uh, we could put a, get put together at least one session where we have uh, half a dozen women build their own
0: dory. Sounds really cool and something's popping into my mind here I might be Conflating two different issues, but did we not all also discuss that you were trying to put together these prefab or pre-cut kits so that you could simply mail out all of the pieces and parts required to build your own punter or Rodney? And was that something we discussed in the past? It just popped into my head.
3: Well, good for you, Patty, for remembering. Yes, um, that's a, an ongoing program. Uh, it's we we call it the Kit Boat. Um, and sometimes jokingly, we call it the boat in a box. Uh, think of it as a great big model airplane like uh, many boys would have built in their, in their youth. Uh, yes, we have built a prototype. Uh, it was completely digitally designed and the parts were cut using a computer-aided machine. Uh, we assembled it last summer and I, in fact, had a chance to row it on the pond and uh, so it's, it, it's got a future. Um, the project is uh, uh, ongoing at the moment. We're waiting for the results of a uh, marketing survey, marketing su- feasibility survey, uh, so that we can apply for f- more funding to get into the real development of it. So once again, uh, we would appreciate feedback uh, from anybody who might be interested in buying a boat kit. Um, I can't tell you the price now. It'll pr- probably be three or $4,000. <clears> And uh, we intend to uh, offer programs where we get uh, half a dozen groups together and they all build their boats at once. Uh, So uh, it's a 21st century Newfoundland punt. It looks like a punt, it grows like a punt, and it came from a computer. (laughs)
0: I think it's awesome. It's really cool. Look, any organization that's preserving our heritage and skills and knowledge is really, really important. So between day programs, week programs, programs dedicated to women or junior builders, uh, these are all big things, and I'm really happy to support them and promote them on this show. Uh, Anything else this morning, uh, Jim? Well,
3: yeah, just thanks for mentioning the junior builders. That's a weekly thing that we do, uh, typically on Thursdays and Saturdays. And it's oriented to kids from 5 to 12 years old. Um, No, nothing else other than to give you some contacts here. Um, You can learn more about us uh, through our website, uh, www.woodenboatmuseum.com, or our uh, Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, Or you can call our, our manager, Betty. At uh, her, or you can call her at 709-583-2044 that's a museum number you'll have to leave a message she'll get back to you or email her at betty.wbmnl that's for Wooden Boat Museum in Newfoundland and Labrador mm-hmm. at email.com
0: Fantastic, I'll keep up the good work Jim say hello to Jerome for me
3: I'll do that and I'll call you again in the
0: spring just before we open just to let you know what's really happening I look forward to it Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, sir. All the best. That's Jim Dempsey from the Wooden Boat Museum. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll rejoin PC member for Terra Nova Lloyd Parrott, with his final thoughts. We got cut off, disconnected, unfortunately, but Lloyd, after this, don't go away.
3: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your
9: VOCM.
0: Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin on line number six, the PC member for Terra Nova, Lloyd Parrott. Lloyd, you're back on the air
9: hey patty i'm not sure where we left off
0: i'm not entirely I sure run. either i'm not sure how we got <laughs> disconnected uh, as well but i think we were in the throes of rationale and the need for jobs regarding onshore construction and all the spin-offs for the potential for Equ- equinor to give the green light and for the province to give the green light to the development
9: yeah i guess what i what i went on to say i believe was uh, i said you know from an environmental standpoint we you know there's proponents on both sides who argue oil and gas but there's one thing that's for certain if this project is to go ahead, uh, the one thing that nobody is talking about is the environmental feasibility of doing the entire project here in Newfoundland versus building it all over the world and shipping it places. And we have the ability to do it. Like I said, we've shown that time and time again. And this project is substantial. I mean, we're talking over a billion barrels, and we've listened to uh, you know, the current Liberal government talk about, Their plan with the way forward and all that, and that's been shelved. There's no question. I mean, it doesn't appear as if oil and gas is the way forward. But this is the silver bullet. There's no question. Right now, this is this is the quickest way to help us in our economic common need. And the green report says just that. Oil and gas has an economic multiplier of five. And it's extremely urgent for us to get our offshore industry back in production, and more importantly, to get the men and women in this province working in our offshore oil and gas.
0: Yeah, but the re- Green Report also goes on to talk about the possibility to divest our, our public interest no in question. offshore. No question. Uh, but, you know, doesn't a lot of this boil down to whether or not the corporate world has the appetite to explore and to produce? Because a lot of incentives have been dangled out there including returning deposits on uh, land sales at the CNLOPB. You know, there's refunds to be had on exploratory drilling. So there's, there's stuff that's absolutely out there in the corporation's best interest. Is there something missing in your opinion?
9: No, Patty, here's what I'll say. Uh, there's no question that we have put the incentives out there, and there's no question that we have seen an uptake in ex- exploration and land sales over the last 12 months. But this Bade and Ore project if we let this work leave this province it sets a pattern going forward where the rest of the work going forward will never happen here the importance of this project being built right here in this province right now is never it's never been so important for us to do this work here you know you look at where we are economically you know our unemployment rates the ability to draw other companies here this is our most golden opportunity that we've seen in years And it's very important for us to be pushing Equinor to do the work right here. I mean, there's no question. Uh, Patty, you know, if we talk about what happened in the past with other projects and we look at what it has done and meant to this province, I'm not saying we've done everything right. We all know that there's been mistakes in in the past. But at the end of the day, this is a time when we can make things work for this province we got to get this work. There's zero question. The building trades are on board. The men and women in this province deserve to the work. They can do the work. Beta Nord, Equinor does this in their own country. Like I said, with the Johan Kastberg, it's sailed in there. They're doing 100% of the work in Norway. Now they want to come to Newfoundland and do the work elsewhere. We should be setting the standard right here, right now.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think there's a big argument uh, against that, but we also— come to some of these negotiations with a little bit... Look, Equinor understands the predicament that the province finds itself in. So there's also that sense that we kind of go to the table a little bit cap in hand. We do indeed own the resource. It's up to us whether or not they pump a single barrel of oil out in the Flemish Pass. But we don't exactly hold all the cards either. So where do you have an additional incentive? We'll call it a lever or... What kind of pressure points are there for us to you know, hold Equinor, uh, their uh, feet to the fire here? Because there's lots of moving parts that we also have not included here, whether it be what the equity stake looks like, what the royalty regime looks like, what the Article 82 of the United Nations uh, Law of the Sea looks like, and who's going to pay those hundreds of millions of dollars of royalty. So what cards do we hold to get the maximum that you're proposing?
9: I think the biggest card that we hold is the, the size of this project. This project has... Multiplied in order of magnitude of 10 right now by the looks of it. You know, if you look at the subsea modules and the different things that are are to be done and created here, we've gone from, you know, three or four subsea modules up to as many as 30. So that clearly indicates that this is a huge project. Equinor has an ability to go anywhere in the world and do work, but the reality of it is they want to come here based on the feasibility, based on the fact that there's the quantity of oil that's in the ground that they have access to from one, you got to think about this, this is one FPSO, that has access to over a billion barrels of oil. That's why they want to come here, and that is the leverage we have. We have a billion barrels of oil that they want to get out of the ground, and they're not going to find that kind of a quantity of oil anywhere else. It's right here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and the men and women in Newfoundland and Labrador deserve to be the primary beneficiaries
0: of it. Appreciate the time, Lloyd. Uh, Wish you well on your recovery. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. No All right, there we go. We're rejoining with Lloyd. Let's try to hit the break reasonably on time. Carol's there to talk about climate change, and then we're going to talk about staffing issues in emergency rooms, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Carol, you're on the air
10: okay um have a nice day now there and and it's a good morning to you i just wanted to say that i do agree that we know there's climate change but i don't believe that the people should be taxed we're already taxed to death that's my opinion on on climate change even though i know that it's changing but here in newfoundland you can stay still in five minutes we could have four seasons as we know right so i'm talking about that also when they are going to put us to uh, electric cars and all the rest. I'm hoping that we have enough uh, electrical grids to handle all of it all over the world because I can see that crashing down here. Sure, all you have to have the wind blow a certain way and the power is gone, right? So it's going to be hard to go and plug in your car when there will be no power.
0: Well, you can't go to the gas station when there's no power either.
10: Right. That's true. But if you got your gas, you can still have your uh, generators, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, things like that aren't going away in full. And plus, I, I think sometimes the conversation kind of sounds like, well, this time next year, the world has changed in full and we're not ready. When I think we're talking about generational stuff, like the move to electric vehicles, there's only, what, a few hundred of them here in the province? So some of those big changes that are coming i don't think are coming as fast as people think they might be preparation for the grid and understanding and advancing the technology it's all happening some it's happening very very quickly but i think there's ample time to prepare for all of those things because it's not going to happen overnight is it
10: no, it has to be uh, way down down the line. But I agree with that gentleman on the gas and oil here, you know. Why are we, uh, Canada, importing oil and, and paying a fortune for that when we could be developing our own and using our own resources and selling it to other countries, right? So, I mean, I agree with that gentleman that had spoke about uh, the oil and gas explorations and that, right? But i tell you now, another thing I was going to say, going to end because I've done one for talking too long. Okay. Um, there's another a thing we can do, too. And this comes uh, uh, from Scripture uh, about climate change. And it says, this is what uh, the Scripture tells us, "'If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, and seek my face,' ...and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's from 2 Chronicles. So on top of all the things we're supposed to be using and reducing and trying to help with our climate, I think we also should also uh, try and do what Scripture tells us, and that's going to help us too, because there's great power in prayer. Do you think?
0: I don't know, uh, to be honest, Carol. Yeah, do
10: do think. Well, anyhow, this is, a, this is a little message for all the Bible-believing people, okay?
0: Well, I mean, there's, I think there's a, a bit more of an overlap than sometimes we acknowledge, so between being spiritual and religious. So they're not all that different. And plus, you know, not everybody is of one faith or another, but oh. wherever people find comfort, that's fine with me. I really have no problem with that. I, it's not my place, nor do I even consider putting down where people find solace and if they have their own uh, faith uh, belief systems that works for them and we all know when some people go too far with zealotry and not to suggest you've done anything of the like but if people think that that's part of what they think is an individual solution or can help them and their family and their community fair enough with me
10: Yes, and that's true. And this is, like I said, for the Bible-believing ones. I'm not, I'm not talking about other denominations or whatever
6: your beliefs
10: are. So be it, right? Yeah. But, I mean, along with it, it's not going to hurt ones that do believe to do that prayer and, and, and all that stuff, too, right?
0: Fair enough with me, Carol. Absolutely. Okay,
10: now you have a good day now, and God bless
0: you. You too. Take good care. Okay, okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Carol. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number four. Don, you're on the air.
2: Yes, I wanted to talk about the staff shortages in health care in general. Okay. Uh, we we know that there's uh, long term beds available in Pleasant View Towers, and Grand Falls, and Cornerbrook. We don't know how many are uh, are available. We do know that they're uh, they're vacant because there's a staff shortage, but we don't know what type of staff, whether it be cleaners, PCA's, LP. Uh, nurses, IRA nurses, or nurse practitioners, and we don't know if there's any plans about to fill these positions. I mean, if we could fill them, then we can get the people out of the acute care beds in our hospital. So I'd like to hear from our government people to say what's what's in the works to uh, to fill the staff shortages in our long-term care facilities. That was sort of the point number one.
0: Okay. Is there a certain discipline where you'd like to know more about recruitment efforts or expanding the number of seats in the training schools? Because some of those disciplines, we have heard lots of information about whether it be the number of vacancies, programs, and incentives put in place to recruit and retain more. So there are specific disciplines that you think we are uh, suffering with a, a dearth of information?
2: Well, that sort of brings me to point number two, okay. is we know that we have a general staff staff shortage in our health care system in Newfoundland. Uh, we have a shortage of somewhere between 60 and 100 uh, G- uh, GPs for family doctors. Uh, the Nurses Association tells us that we're short, I think it's 800 RNs. We haven't heard how many LPNs or personal care attendants or paramedics for short Uh, and we haven't heard any uh, significant plans to uh, meet this need Uh, hiring a few uh, nurses or doctors in India or Ireland uh, is like trying to kill a horse with a with a toothpick uh, what we need is schools we need training we need education of peoples we need a program a significant program and the ten positions that they're doing for uh, doctors I mean we're nowhere n- near meeting our needs uh, for uh, general uh, practitioners in Newfoundland, we we need n- major plans. There's a shortage of these people all over Canada, North America, and indeed the world. So, what is our government doing to uh, to meet our needs specifically here in Newfoundland?
0: No, big question. You know, there's a lot to what you just uh, said there. So, obviously, there's a shortage of doctors, family doctors in particular. If the most recent research uh, indicates there's 136,000 people in the province without access to a family doctor, which is a crazy number, went up from 125,000 not that long ago. You know, if you look at what the government says they are doing to try to recruit I mean, whether it be doctors in Ireland or nurses in India, and we don't even know if they, and they haven't told us if there was a target set to measure whether or not it was a successful initiative. But there's stuff that they floated out there, the old come-home program for healthcare professionals with an attachment and or training in this province, dangling pretty big money for them to come back to the province to work, and apparently some have taken that on. We know there's some programs out there and monies that have been put forward for casual nurses to enter the permanent full-time ranks. Are they doing enough? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, The expansion of the number of seats for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians at the medical school has grown to 65 because the province of New Brunswick stopped funding their five seats we took it on so now that's five more doctors from here that could be trained and most likely to stay versus someone who came from elsewhere so I don't know if what they're doing a, is a, enough Pardon? we need a hundred doctors that might be the case but they five, can't five, five, five that we're going to get from
2: Brunswick a year is uh, nowhere near what we need I mean, we're going after this with little band-aids here and there when when we need major programs.
0: Yeah, The I don't think anyone said we can just magically... Create 100 additional seats for the province at the Mun's Med School. I think you know every effort from uh, provincially expanding seats in schools and recruitment domestically and unfortunately abroad. I don't know if there's a one program or one policy or one approach that is going to be perfect and solve all our problems. I don't imagine because I think you rightfully pointed out we're talking about provinces competing with other provinces. The shortages are real right across the country. You know, and that's not giving government the free pass that's just the facts of the matter so even going to recruit in Ireland my god they've got their problems very similar to ours so I don't know if there's one thing that we're totally missing like do you have an idea that could be added to the pile because I think we'd all love to hear good ideas things that could work because we're all facing very similar issues well
2: we, we need an additional nursing school in Newfoundland. We need to enlarge our medical program significantly from, I think it's 50 a, a year to 75 or 100 a year. Like we, Five is, is not going to do
0: it. No, five was the and addition. Five was just five more than we had for, two years ago.
2: That was from New Brunswick, and then there was 10 that was existing within the system that was just being changed over to Newfoundland only. So there's no additionals. Uh, positions created. It's just a uh, reallocation, hoping that they will stay. Of course, the other thing, all this recruitment is not to, going to do any good if we don't have a working environment that these people are going to be uh, happy enough to stay in Newfoundland to work in our healthcare system. So we need a system, a medical system, a management system in Newfoundland that will keep our healthcare workers happy.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair comment to make, too. Just like, uh, you know, legislation passed to deem those uh, Bob Fuhr's uh, ambulance workers as essential. That's okay to get them back to work. That doesn't mean they're going to stay. You know, so that's only part of that conversation. And fair enough. Uh, Don, last thoughts go to you before I take a break for the news. So
2: I think we'd like to hear from our our, uh, Minister of Health as to what the government plans are in the long term to fulfill the future needs of our medical healthcare system. Okay, thanks a lot.
0: Thanks, Don. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. How are we doing on the phones there, David? When we come back, the floor is yours. Don't go away.
3: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 12.30 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the
0: table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Anne. you're on the air.
11: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning?
0: Very well. How about you?
11: I got complained about home care.
0: Okay. What is it?
11: Well, I live out here in the Dildo area. I've had home care for six years, and my husband is bedridden for six six years. And the last of December, my home care worker retired because she was at the age of retirement, and I had it for six years. Now I'm three weeks with no with no extra home care. I only get 35 hours a week and I'm government gave me 55. So my evening girl had to come in the mornings and help me get up my husband. So I got no girl for afternoon. And I can't get no sense from a, from my home care provider. She's ignoring me and I don't know what to do. I'm after calling every every source of the government see what I can do who, who? Now, I'll tell you one thing What's if it? I got to put my husband in a nursing home because of the home care company somebody is going to pay
0: who provides your home care
11: the circle of care in
0: and who pays for it I do okay so they're unwilling to provide you extra hours for pay money that you're are you willing to pay more for additional hours or exactly what are we talking about
11: Money is not the problem. She tells me she's got no workers. Okay. And there's two companies out here in a very small community, and there's two companies, and they can't get no workers. It's very hard to believe.
0: Well, fair enough, but for me, like, it's a job I couldn't do. Between the... the people you care for and their complicated needs and the desperately low pay—I—I don't. There's a reason why we're having a hard time attracting and keeping home care workers, isn't there?
5: Well,
11: I'm after phone several different companies and they all got the same problem. Yeah. Now you tell me, all these people out in the communities lying around doing nothing—they can't find no workers. It's, it's, I, I can't believe that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I imagine the case is they can't find people who are willing to do it. Not that there's people out there who absolutely should be doing something for a living. It is I guess there's just not as many people interested in providing home care as these companies would like because obviously it's in the company's best interest. If they could hire more workers and have more hours paid for by people like yourself, they'd be better off in their business standing. So I guess they're just really struggling trying to get anyone to want to do that job. It's a really difficult job to begin with. I don't think we pay home care workers enough money to want to have more people wanting to do it so i think the same thing if you look at the other end of the spectrum let say for, for instance an early childhood educator we're having a devil of a time getting people to do that because it's a tough job with a huge responsibility but not the rate of pay that you think should be afforded to them so yeah both ends of that spectrum i think is very similar issues
11: Okay. Well, i tell you right now, you're no help to me. But if somebody on the line is willing to help me, I'm willing to do private home care. And I can't really, I, I'm new to the community. I don't know anybody. I'm welcome to, I'm more than happy to do it privately. But I don't know anybody that's willing to do it.
0: I understand. So you say you're in dildo. Is that what you said, Anne? Yes. Okay. And there's only two companies available. I wouldn't know where to point you for uh, more help because if there's no, if both companies are unable to do anything for you, have you gone down the road of the health authority itself?
11: Yes, I'm after calling every inch of the government, everybody I'm involved in. Okay. And all you get is answering machines. <phone rings>
0: Uh, I tell you what, I will do for you, Anne. I will see if I can contact someone who I know is in the home care world at Eastern Health and give them your number, if that helps.
11: Yes. Now, there's a number here, Long Term Action Line. I've been calling that, and their office is not even open.
0: Okay. So uh, if, you,
11: I, if you can get somebody to call me Because I'm definitely going to report this lady I'm not putting up with it no
0: more Okay, I understand that I understand your concerns and your frustration I have your number I will pass it along to someone who I hope can do something for you I don't. I can't make any promises because I'm not that person But I'll pass your number along
11: Okay, sweetheart
0: I'll do that for you, Anna I wish you good luck Stay in touch Thank
12: you You're Brian. welcome
0: Bye-bye uh, Okay, let's go to line number two Brian, you're on the air
12: Hello, Patty. how are you? Not too bad, how about you? Good, I know you're Having quite the discussion this morning on mental health and assisted suicide. Well, you know, Patty, um, I got I got an awful lot of problems with assisted suicide. I, I always did. Uh, when you take into into consideration that they're saying that people with uh, mental health problems now can. Take your own lives. You gotta realize that mental health is not an exact science. It's not like like going to the doctor and the doctor say you got cancer, you got six months to live. It's it's not that kind of a science. And you know, sometimes you may go through a, an emotional period, and and you'll want to take your life. Like, and I'm not afraid to say this, Patty. I'm not I'm not embarrassed by saying this. My sister died about uh, four months ago, and she was taking care of me. And, you know, Patty, for the first while, I didn't want to live. I just didn't want to live. And under the laws of, of the country, probably I, I could have taken my own life that's, that's not right. And I think that if we're going to allow people to take their own lives use an exact size.
0: but what does that mean allow people to take their own lives because in the process of medical assistance in dying under the laws and the process it's not necessarily how you couch it so what does that mean allow people to take their own lives because people take their own lives unfortunately all the time it's not whether or not we allow them to do they simply do
12: Well, I mean, if, if, for example, say, you come to my apartment, you're sick, I take your life, then I'm going to be arrested for, for murder. That's what I mean, is that the laws of the land allows us to do things. It allows us to drive cars. It allows us to drink liquor. It allows us to vote for whoever we want. That's what I mean by allows us. And... Um, my brother, who who died in 2006, often says when the government was talking about assisted suicide that, and people were saying. That you had, to, you know, the government had to give you the right, the right to take your own life, and he used to always say the right to take your life is going to become the responsibility to take your life, and I think in some cases in our society it's the responsibility. So uh, I'm certainly not in favor of, of assisted suicide for mentally ill people. Um, You know, know what they're going to do with it, I I don't know. But I I think before you um, make laws uh, saying that uh, people with mental problems can take their own lives, uh, you you think twice about it. They're not allowed to drive cars, and they shouldn't be allowed to take their own lives. Yeah.
0: I'm not Still I'm not 100% sure About what allowed means Because People do it
12: We we live in a We live in Uh, a Democratic country
0: right, Right Yeah
12: Living in a Democratic country Allows you To do certain things It allows
0: you to vote. Yeah, but uh, these are all very, 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 very different things. You know, if someone makes a personal decision that they have come to that conclusion that that's what they want to do, they would like to take their own life for one reason or another, there's no allowed or disallowed involved in that conversation. If we're talking about medical assistance in dying and going through your healthcare provider, your doctor and a second doctor, and meeting all the eligibility requirements to get a doctor to help you, uh, whether it be in your own home or in a clinical setting or in a hospital. So they're all different things. I mean, we've experienced uh, suicide here in our company. Uh, I've experienced it in my social circles. So, And these were people who were told they could or could not. They simply chose to do it. So I, I maybe we're in the same church but different pew, uh, but I'm not sure. I'll give you the final word, though. Go ahead.
12: Well, the thing is, as uh, I said again uh when I' uh, probably going use the wrong word I don't know probably I, should I don't know I mean,
0: it's yeah okay
12: encourage um and I think we are I think that's one thing we're doing in our society the way we live our lives I think in some cases we are encouraging people to take their own lives. oh god no. e- gay people uh no, lesbian no, no. people people with AIDS. Uh, since the 1980s, uh, I've I've uh, I've I've heard, you know, poli- even politicians saying that, you know, uh, people with AIDS may be better if they thought about about removing themselves from society. But again, um, this whole idea of assisted suicide, where right, after going down a very slippery slope, and uh, whether it's Mr. Palladura or whoever he is. Or Mr. Trudeau or Dr. Fiore, uh, I, I'd, like I'd like to see what we're going to end up to on this. I'd we'll like to thank you. I know we disagree, and
0: that's okay. Oh, I don't even know if I understand what you're saying to disagree or agree, to be honest with you, because uh, there are different things. Going to a doctor to talk about this, the end of life, versus make your own personal decision of your own accord, quietly, and personally, there are just different things. Uh, you know, So I'm not going to agree or disagree because I'm not 100% sure uh, where you're coming from, but that's fine, and that's the nature of the beast here for these types of conversations. It's not win or lose. It's not a zero-sum game. So I'm glad you made time for the show, and I appreciate the call.
12: God bless you, and have a nice day.
0: The very same to you. Take care, Brian. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, when we come back, we're talking about MUN. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh, where am I going here? Just one second. Get the right controller in play. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. That's Barry Pettin. Barry, you're on the air.
13: Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? How bad? You? I'm good. Thanks, Patty. Uh, I'm calling in this morning. You have a few minutes. So I just read that story this morning and uh, actually written BOCM online <laughs> first thing this morning about Mon. And, you know, to say that I was floored, I guess, is an understatement. I mean, I spoke out about Mon's spending and out of control spending, what I referred to a couple of years ago, and I got a lot of flack back from Mon, uh, President uh, Timmons, and, and others. And fair enough, that's, that's, that's the game we play, and I understand it. And the question, why would I say it's lavish? Why am I questioning their spending and what have you? Why am I questioning this contract? That's a lavish contract with the personal trainers and tax prep uh, monies involved. The reason I'm questioning it, Patty, obviously we're seeing it again today. I mean hundred thousand dollars at Falco Alden, which is a beautiful place. But it's, not, it's on one money all the wall, we got skyrocketing tuition, we got a strike looming, you know. I mean my own daughter's about, um, tied up in there trying to complicate this a possible strike. And, you know, and this this this, this uh, border regions were not even asked. I mean in the story I read the border regions weren't even communicated on this one. Is wrote there's politicians possibly involved. Like, where does this stuff stop? I mean, you could have this form. No reason you couldn't have this form in a, in a, a nice plot in no London, got a lot, a lot of nice buildings. We just got a new science building built. There's lots of places you can go to have this form. Go down to the rooms and the room if you want to, you know, go somewhere a bit better, you know. You don't have to go out there And I'm the, I'm the dorm, really on your taxpayer's dorm, I and mean, you're on the student's dorm who are yeah. uh, suffering, struggling. It's a hard one, Patty, I think, for any common person. Like probably like myself for you or anyone else out there to get your head around, and it's 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 not it's not it's not a good show, and I
0: think you know I just I, I to me it's just dumb pounds, me. It's not a good look. I mean, when we're talking about taking the temperature of the room, and you know whether it be negotiations with your own faculty and the massive increase in tuition and the maintenance deficit at Memorial and all these types of things. Uh, but uh, So I'll say and I'll absolutely agree that it doesn't look good, but I think it probably is being presented worse than it really is. But that's nature of the beast, though, too, isn't it? You know, out of the $57,000 of direct expenses for Memorial University, some of the external funding, by the participants and sponsors recovered 53 of it. So the $100,000 price tag that's been assigned to it I think is a little bit misleading but yes, when you are taking your affairs to the uber lavish Fogo Island Inn it just doesn't really jive with some of the concerns that the general public students at Memorial University and the Faculty Association are experiencing so you know, again, you could have done this almost anywhere and if you replace Fogo Island Inn with the Delta, or the Sheraton, or the Rooms, or JAG, it comes across in a much different feel because it is the absolute epitome epitome of lavishness, is the Fogo Island Inn. And that's not an insult, that's just reality. The Rooms are extraordinarily expensive. vast majority of people listening to this program will never have an opportunity to stay there. So I think just including Fogo Island Inn makes it feel worse than it maybe is.
13: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and you 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 represent Delta, so we're gonna go max out on two hundred dollars, which is getting nice from a Delta two hundred bucks night to two thousand. And you're absolutely right; it's out of touch for most of us, me included. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful place, and it's uh, you know, it's 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 a gem. But it's uh, you know, when you're using this money and spending it and getting out there to these places, it's sending the wrong message. You know, and, and I, I'll go back, I guess, to some of the commentary I've had over the last couple of years has been education critic and calling out some of the spending. You, you can't not call it out because you see it in, the, in your in your face and you look at the common person. We're going through, you know, with the cost of living, we're still now. People are struggling. You know, our economy's still on fire for some reason, but there are a lot of people struggling. And this stuff just, like, you know, the saying goes, you know, people think they're entitled to their entitlements. And this is. To me, this is what this reeks of. Even though you're right, some of the costs are Now there is a part there. Some of the costs are also uh, come from departmental budgets, so them that's not included. So we really don't know the full cost. But. Forget about that to a degree. The cost is the cost. and what it is. But you're sending a terrible message to the general public, to the students. And, I mean, how do you expect people to sympathize or to you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sympathize with you when you just don't seem to get it? Like, leadership at Mon, for some reason, on most every issue out there, and you can go back to the old, which is a separate one altogether. But these issues, they're, they're issues, and it seems to be that same sentiment every time, Patty, that they don't have the gas for, for forgiveness or permission. They're on their own. They want this time. I mean, I like. I hope the A.G. is in as a good look at the books. I I think we've got that clause. We got that made possible, and I mean, extra funding provided to get staff to go and do that, actually. I hope that's being done. If it's not being done, I sure hope that it's in the process of getting started and getting done. This stuff needs to be, I mean, this is our, this is our university, it's our pride and joy, it's Newfoundland Labrador's university, and we we need to have a better look, and I mean, we need to be more cautious and more in tune with realities, and this is not in tune with realities. This is totally out of touch, and I'm, uh, say I'm disappointed and disgusted as an understatement, but... Uh, Thank you for your time, and uh appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity, and uh, we'll talk to you another day.
0: Appreciate it, Barry. Thank you. Okay, thank Take care, you. Bye-bye. Bye. Barry Patton's the PC member for CBS. Yeah, it's not a good look when you consider everything that's out there to be considered this day and age and the time we find Eight. ourselves in. Uh, very quickly, we're going to wait to come back after the news and speak with Colleen. She wants to respond to Anne. Anne has the home care concern. But here's the tale of two libraries. Beautiful new four million dollar library opening today in CBS, which is tremendous. I mean, you know, for many people, library is one of the centerpieces of a community. And then you juxtapose that with the unfortunate, pardon me, or difficult decisions they had to make out in the town of Pasadena regarding their library. Now remember. Uh, A third of the population of Pasadena actually has a library card. But when they were trying to expand a footprint for doctors to come to the community, and it's a growing community out there, 3,600 people live in Pasadena. They say they're fast-tracking towards 4,000, and they needed space for doctors. So not so long ago, the town actually bought a building known as The Hub. And it it housed the Treehouse Family Resource Center. And because of the expanded footprint, through the jigs and the reels, The Treehouse Family Resource Center has a new space, albeit not as big, they say it's gonna be adequate, but the size of the library's been cut in half as a result. Now the Pasadena mayor and everyone else, they understand that this is a difficult issue to try to navigate the folks responsible for the library. uh, Carol Spicer is a member of the board of directors. They're quite disappointed. So they have a pretty big collection, some 13,000 items in their collection, and there's no way they can fit it into the new space, which is uh, just some 900 square feet. So big new building, a beautiful library, and cbs had opens today and the pasadena library group so miss Boyce or anyone else out there whether it be from the treehouse family resource center and or the community and or the library board happy to have you on the show let's take a break colleen is next to talk about what ann had to say don't go away nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go to line number two colleen you're on the air
14: Uh, Hi, Patty. I was listening to the lady who was looking for home care for her husband. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been in home care over 40 years, and the worst I've seen is since the COVID started. Uh, A lot of people quit their jobs at that time. Uh, I worked the last—I was laid off in— No October, November uh, I had a client then who passed away I worked with him for three years And never had a day off Because they had no one else to replace me So it is Extremely, extremely hard To get someone To do the home care And I wish her All the best I'm not in that area I'm in the Torbay area Uh, I wasn't laid off very long When I had another job but. Uh, you have to have someone who's really, really extremely dedicated to doing the job.
0: Without a doubt and as I freely admitted to Anne I don't think I could do it I mean, I've wow. I, I know people who are in the field, and you know, there's a few things. For starters, hundred there's a heaping load of responsibility on your shoulders. There's some very complicated needs of your client or patient, and then factoring the amount of money that they get paid. No wonder people are having a hard time attracting folks to come to work in whether it be private and or public offerings of healthcare.
14: Well, I worked with the disabled for thirty five years. Mm-hmm. And that was like completely disabled. And the last man I worked with, who just died there before Christmas, uh, he was getting three hours a day. I was really dedicated to this man. I took him into my heart. I agreed to take him home with me so he wouldn't have to be by himself. Uh, I probably spent 10 hours a day with him. I would come home. He lived in uh, Woodward Park. I live in Torbay. I would come home and get my dog, and I would go back and spend the rest of the day with him. And I'm married.
0: (laughs) Well, good uh, for you, Carol or Colleen, pardon me.
14: I am very dedicated to my job. I love my job. I love helping people, but my heart goes out to this lady because I looked after my parents too and I know how
0: hard it is. We've got to figure out home care. We really do. I mean, even inside the Health Accord and, you know, the seniors advocate, currently Miss Walsh, and the former seniors advocate, Suzanne Brake, the want for more and more people to stay in their home with the required supports, those numbers are growing. While we all talk about, you know, the institutional, uh, uh, that would be a long-term care facility and trying to build beds to accommodate that, for some people, that's the answer. And for some people, they have no option. But more and more seniors are going to want to what they call age and place so it's not just about you know folks who need home care because of disabilities or what have you it's a big broad conversation and it does include so many seniors who would prefer to spend their golden years in their own home close to their family close to their friends familiar surroundings happy and healthy and dignified you know there's a lot to this
14: Oh well wow. you absolutely hit the nail right on the head because I was just gonna say if I had to have a choice for my client he wouldn't have never been in a home, but i it was out of my hands. He has family members. but if it was mine, they wouldn't have never been in a the home. They would have been home with me. And I would take in a, a stranger and take care of him. But to have family members and put your... I know a lot of people don't agree with me, but to put your... Family member into a home when you can take care of them?
0: Uh, no, I don't agree with you. I understand that and then you know we're, we're talking about people's happiness and their safety and their dignity but when we talk about all these things we also have to include because it's part of it dollars and cents it's extremely sure. expensive to be in a long-term care bed you know we yeah. don't spend anywhere near that kind of money to keep people in their own homes whether it be expanding the the hours they get from a home care worker or otherwise so i'm not really sure why we don't you know. Give us an understanding at the departmental level. What does it cost to have for someone to get, let's just use a number, uh, eight hours or 12 hours a day of home care support versus what would happen if they didn't have the required supports, they end up in a long-term care bed. How do we? How does that factor in financially? I'm going to suggest that it costs way more to have them in long-term care than it does to keep them in their own home. Oh, I know that. Yeah, it certainly feels that way, doesn't
14: it? I know that. Like, because I, I, when I worked with the disabled, they uh, there was probably ten of them in the building, and they all shared the care. And we were kind of like in an office, and they called us when they needed us. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were a hundred hundred percent better off that way than they were out in say uh, their own apartment and having someone come come in like a couple of times a day. Because usually when you're getting you, somebody has like a lot of care, well usually they split up the hours and have you coming in a couple of times a day. For that person.
0: Yeah, and now of course every case will be different but
14: Oh yes, every case is different.
0: Mhm.
14: Yeah. Uh, like Uh, I was going in three hours first in the morning and then I was going three hours first in the morning and then one hour in the evening and then it increased to two hours in the evening and then it increased to 24 hours of that. So it it changes over time.
0: Mm -hmm. No
8: doubt.
14: My heart goes out to that woman not being able to get care for her husband because it's going to be extremely hard on her.
0: Absolutely, gonna you can.
14: Take t- it's going to take a toll on her, actually.
0: You can hear it in her voice. She's already there.
14: Yes. Well, I cried for her, that's how. Like, I was devastated that she can't get nobody.
0: Me too. And uh, like I told her, what I would do is pass along a number to uh, someone I know in that works in that field. Not that anything's going to happen or we're going to be able to figure it out for her, but we'll try.
14: Yes. And I appreciate that because I listen to your show. Well, actually, me and my client used to listen to your show every morning.
0: <laughs> I appreciate it.
14: And, uh, and he loved it. And the lady that I'm working with now, when you don't have a radio, she says, Where, where's my radio? So I can listen to Patty Daly.
0: <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I appreciate the so, call, and thanks for tuning in, Colleen.
14: Yes, uh, but there is an extreme, like... Needs for home care workers, extreme needs. Absolutely. And you got to be dedicated. You got to be like, I'm over dedicated. I know that. But you still have to be dedicated to the job and you have to love the job to be able to go in and help that person. That's the only way, like my father used to say, if you can't give 100%, don't be there.
0: And that job requires 100% if you're going to do it right and do the uh, client or the patient justice, absolutely right.
14: Yeah, and that's what I give.
0: Good for you, so, Colleen. I'm glad you called this morning.
14: I, uh, my hair goes out to her, and I really pray that she gets somebody. Me too. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Take good care.
14: You too. Bye-bye. Right.
0: Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's, that's the list of the extensive list of things that we've really got to figure out in short order. You know, sometimes when we talk about the aging demographic, for instance, some people take that as a slight When That's not how it's intended. If we just look at the facts of the matter or what we're seeing on the ground and the average age of the population and where they live, we've got to figure out home care because the recommendations across the board have been to understand the importance for so many people with the required supports to be able to age in place, to stay in their own home. And so yes, we have to factor in the most important parts, and that would be uh, health, safety, happiness, dignity, proximity to family, familiar surroundings, all of these things. And yes, absolutely, I guess unfortunately so, we also have to consider the dollars and cents of it all. Someone paint me a picture who's at the government level to t- tell me exactly what it costs to be in a long-term care bed versus what it would cost, and we, you know we can pick ten or twelve different examples of different levels of requirement of healthcare in the home or home care in your own home. And I can't even imagine a scenario where ninety percent of these cases are less expensive to be at home versus in long-term care. And of course, inside the world of long-term care, it has an institutional feel. Some people are quite pleased and happy with being in one of these facilities, and fair enough. For some people, that's what they prefer to do. Okay, that works for me as well. But it's hard to believe that 90% of individual cases wouldn't be better served and less expensive to stay at home. You know, and if that's not accurate, then government should probably be painting us a picture because if they're going to put so much stock into things like the health accord and the 10-year plan that it is, and they talk about it quite clearly there, the past and most recent and the current uh, seniors advocate also speak to this. So home care is not only for seniors, of course, it's for lots of people of different ages with different types of issues that require some support in the home. Some of it might be very fundamental, like a bit of cooking and cleaning. Some of it might be to deal with their physical issues. So it's a tough job. Let's figure it out. And for sure, we've got to understand what the rate of pay is. Because when we're asking people to take on the toughest jobs with the most responsibility, you have to factor in how much we're paying people. Of course you do. And right now, it certainly doesn't feel like home care workers are getting their due when it comes to the amount on their biweekly paycheck. And again, like I I mentioned to uh, Colleen, I think, is go right back to the other end of the spectrum, you know, starting off early in life and early childhood education. It's fine to talk about the fact that it's going to be $10 a day, and that's an affordability issue, and there's lots of upside to it, and I don't have any small children, so it doesn't impact me directly. But just think about the development of your brain by the time you're five years old and how important it is to get off to a good start and a safe place to put your children so ten dollars a day is just part of it because we haven't fully wrapped our mind around how it's going to work for regulated versus unregulated in someone's home in a major for-profit center so it's not quite all figured out now the province has attended to their plan for ten dollars a day regarding early childhood education training opportunities and increasing albeit incrementally the rate of pay for an ece because we need great people doing that, too. So some of the spaces that we've seen dry up is because they don't have staff, because it's a difficult job with lots of responsibility without without the rate of pay that you think you should be getting if you take on one of those jobs. So there's a lot to that, and we can tackle that or anything else under the sun right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one caller, you're on the air.
15: Kennedy, you were just talking about... Um how much it costs for uh, long-term care. Uh-huh. Um, I worked in long-term care and I also had a relative that was in long-term care. And um, it would cost anywhere from 1200 a month to $3,500 a month uh, depending on the person's uh, income. Like uh DVA, if they had a good pension they would pay like thirty thirty two hundred and fifty dollars a month. So as opposed to an hourly wage of home care at home. Stay in the home. Okay. So like it could be from twelve hundred dollars if a person was on like a disability or um, if they were on a high pension or had their own business or whatever, would go would range from uh, $30 to $150. And uh, the, then they're dispersed uh, $150 for just monthly miscellaneous, the, the person with the pension. $150 to get a month from your check, that's it.
0: Yeah, and that's why every scenario, as I've tried to say, is every case is different. You know, the circumstances, whether you're on disability, whether there's some private insurance, whether or not you're independently wealthy, whether or not you only need eight hours a day or 24 hours a day. So everything has to be evalu- evaluated at face value. And I guess ultimately the the point I'm trying to make is...
15: But it would be cheaper <coughs> if they were put into, kept in their own homes. Uh, I think so. Or. Three, four, five, even five hours a day, if if that's possible. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's big money in the into the, and like the government takes your your money. So uh, personally, I feel that it's better if people were able to stay in their own homes and uh, have the care, twenty four hour care. Um, yeah. <sighs>
0: Some people need that extended uh, 24-hour care. Not all. Uh, and I do think, you know, no, as opposed all. to just talking about it in human terms, it always feels a little bit unfortunate when we uh, talk dollars and cents inside that world and or health care in general. But we have to because that's the reality of life. I'll be a monkey's uncle if it's cheaper to be in long-term care in almost every single scenario where people simply need additional support at home because it's expensive to be in a long-term care bed.
15: Very expensive. And... Uh yeah, it's better if they they were in their home environment and surroundings, and if they had family that could look after them, right? So if or an agency that's dedicated to uh, looking after people in their own homes.
0: But even the agencies, like uh, the Anne was the lady who called from Dildo, the only two entities operating out and around where she lives. They can't offer any additional hours, even though Ann's willing to pay for it, because they simply don't have the staff. So, again, another example in the world of health care delivery where we've got a staff problem. And-
15: staffing staffing issues, and, I mean, we're seeing it in healthcare care anyway, in the long-term care. Staffing is a big issue. You have a lot of people injured. A lot of staff are injured. You have people who are burnt out, especially since the COVID Uh and you know, with other um, outbreaks, yeah, just not enough staff.
0: And there's a variety of reasons why that's the case too. But I'm glad you called. Would you like to say anything else this morning?
15: Uh, I'm let's touch on that story that was in the news about that LPN RN whatever uh, that ended up. Working in long-term care uh, facilities, those in Gander and in St. John. Yep. Uh, does anybody ever check uh, credentials uh, anymore or background
0: checks? They do. She slips through the cracks. She used a bunch of aliases and stuff. So she schemed and gamed the system, and you know. Thankfully, they caught on to it before it was too late or before too long because it was already too late because she did a number of shifts. But I can't even imagine.
15: She was was also let out out on bail. Like, what kind of a system do we have uh, to protect um, the patient? You know, I mean, apparently that lady, I don't know how true it is, but it's in the news that she was charged with the homicide of her child. So, how does a person get under the radar when it comes to like shouldn't police be more aware of that this person is back in the province?
0: Well, we knew she was here.
15: Aliases. And how does this person get into the health care system? I mean, it's pretty scary.
0: It is. And And, she's facing a bunch of charges as a result, and rightfully so.
15: And gets out on bail.
0: Well, I mean, okay,
15: yeah. I mean, seriously. It's not good enough.
0: Well, and that's not the only example. There was a fella who faked his credentials to work in a long-term care facility and uh, was...
15: Being burnt or something, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: I, th- I think so. I can't remember off the top of my head, so it's not the only example we have. But uh, just imagine being someone who's willing and wanting to fake your credentials to work with some vulnerable people in society. There's a certain amount of depravity and sickness associated with this. It's a bizarre story, but uh, I guess the summary... Well, there's summary a lot of that is, uh,
15: going, going on in right. Newfoundland... When it comes to Child, Youth, and Family Services as well, because uh, okay. uh, they're, they're, they're taking children not necessarily. That's why the foster system is overloaded. Uh, why okay. why aren't we not reuniting families, children with their families?
0: That should be the ultimate goal. Of course it should be. When
15: children, when children yes. are being took on hearsay and assumptions, and... Uh, W5 did a report with uh, Andrea Gass about Quinn Butt, and in that interview, in that documenta- documentary, Andrea states that the judge, social workers, the family court, and a judge knew that Quinn was at risk and the child was not protected. The same as Zachary Turner and many other children in the province. There's right. Like, I think over 36 children dead. So, like, the health care system is not working efficiently as it should. And children are not getting... Um, the services they require, whether it be counseling uh, or what is known as Jordan's principle and the rights of the child.
0: There's no argument that it's not working the way it's intended to. And because we've just cleared 12 o'clock, you've had the last word, but I appreciate the time.
15: Thank you, Patty.
0: Take good care. Bye bye. You
15: too. Bye
0: bye. All right. That was indeed the last word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.